Well, we have to begin with a little game, and it's going to be Kiss, Mary Kill. Have you played this game before? I have played a dirtier variation of it, yes. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to keep it PG here. Now, okay. uh, just because, you know, I'm a zany person, I always choose zany characters. And uh, for you, as well as for Don and Mike, I've chosen only masculine characters. Are you okay with this? Sure. Okay. So, Kiss, Mary Kill, Tom, Orion, Zariel, or Plastic Man? Hmm. Probably, I don't know. I guess Mary would be the Zariel one. Oh, okay. So I figure that he would be a, a good sort of companion. It's kind of tough between Plastic Man and Orion because they're both weirdly aggressive in their own way. Mm-hmm. So I would say kiss Orion and kill Plastic Man. <laughs> I had to flip a coin on the on that. Uh, so yeah. I would agree with you. I think Plastic Man just annoys me for whatever reason. I didn't really realize how obnoxious he is. And when we get it's kind of creepy in that way, too. (laughs) He is. He is a little bit. And he was doing weird stuff the last time you were on. And then I'm going to ask you a big question once we do our secret files of why they chose Plastic Man over Elongated Man. But Orion, who is very aggressive, I think... I'll be okay to kiss him, but uh, Zariel seems like he might be the the best match to marry. Well, thanks yeah. for playing. <laughs> no problem. Ah. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition. No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny. It only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls.
Stella, and this is Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 155 for March MMXVIII. Backroll to Oracle is brought to you by JLU Cast. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Working together, we saved the planet. And I believe that if we stayed together as a team, we would be a force that could truly work for the ideals of peace and justice. Every episode. My name is Jean. I'm a Martian. Every adventure. <sighs> okay. You guys are so slow. Every hero. Whatever you think you're doing, if you present a threat to the world, the Justice League will take you down. Cindy and Chris Franklin bring you JLU Cast. Whatever the future holds, we'll make those choices ourselves. Don't say you don't love me. I'll never say that. Covering the complete animated run of Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. And the adventure continues. There's strength in numbers. What? Like a bunch of super friends? More like a Justice League. Backroll the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Backroll the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Be sure to support TBU and, of course, BTO, and subscribe to the show on Patreon by going to thebatmanuniverse.net. Well, uh, this is fun because I've got my little uh, co-host that will always come on during JLA, so I've got some consistency, some continuity. But what's also fun is that he comes after someone that he likes and highly regards rather than Shag, you know, that I, I like <laughs> and regard him well. But he's following Michael Bailey, so I've got two heavy hitters coming right after another. So welcome back to the show, my good friend Tom Panarese. Hey, how are you? I am well. Tom, what day is it today that we're recording? It is Friday, March 2nd. Tom time is it that we're recording right now by my clock twelve forty six p.m <laughs> so what's really weird about this is actually no we didn't have personal days or professional days or a holiday we were supposed to be in school right now but with i guess these blasts of wind power was knocked out at both of our schools and so we're off so we had originally scheduled to do this at night and then all of a sudden we were able to move it to a pleasant time of day yeah <laughs> that that rarely happens it does rarely happen unless it's summer. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is true. Well, as you know, uh, a mutual friend of ours is uh, currently pregnant with a little dino baby inside of his tum-tum. And I wondered, since you, in fact, are a parent, uh, what advice would you give for someone who is expecting? Say goodbye to sleep. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. You don't sleep a lot during the first year. Okay. Do you think they're that's it? That's all you would give to him? I don't know. It's just I just remember like trying to remember. You kind of block it out after a while. <laughs> no, I just I remember like you you get like over I remember like you overthink like everything when it comes to just a lot of the stuff that you have to do as a parent. You know, it's like even basic stuff like feeding and all that, like because the way um <laughs> 
parenting, parenting publications, blogs, Twitter, you know, all that stuff kind of works the way the same way that like teaching ones do where it's like, you know, you can, you can log on to stuff and you discover that after like maybe five minutes of searching that you're doing every single thing wrong you're destroying the life of this child. So (laughs) don't go on the internet. Oh man. Well, that's, that's certainly advice for probably all topics. Don't go yeah. on the internet to see. Yeah. No, it's 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 tough. It's hard not to overthink like being a parent. Mm-hmm. I still do it, especially because I only have one kid. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I want to make sure like my wife and I both being having a fair amount of anxiety and being you know perfectionist to a certain extent. We were like you know we worry, you know, are we doing this right? Are we missing something? You know, and things like that. And mm-hmm. it helps to take a step back every once in a while and be like, you know, you're okay. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, I think the the first one I suppose is always the hardest, but he also gets all of your attention. This is true. <laughs> oh, well, I hope Don can can learn from that and I guess we'll see if I find other parents I can also ask for for Don's benefit there. Well, I only have two little topics uh before we actually get into our reviews. We've got a bunch of JLA to get through. Only we're only doing like a solid review on one of them. But I did want to talk a little bit about the background movie news that has been coming out recently. We we just said to stay away from the internet's, but have you seen sort of <laughs> what's been going down or at least the latest? I know that Joss Whedon I believe he 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 was either wa- he either walked off or he fired he was fired. Mm-hmm. I can't I couldn't remember, but he's off the movie, which Correct. that's fine with me. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of his. At one point or another, I don't know if this is rumor conjecture or if it's actually been confirmed that Roxanne Gay is involved mm-hmm. now. And then the last thing I saw was I think it was her or a couple other people, and Don will appreciate this. She was saying, you know, you know. Because they were talking about like who would they cast as Batgirl, and a suggestion went out for somebody who was not white nor redhead, mm-hmm. and racist internet exploded. And um, and she said, "Well, you know, it'd be nice to have a bat something." I don't remember the exact tweet, but it was almost along the lines. It'd be nice to have a Batgirl who's not a white redhead. My first thought before I saw any of the replies was, "Wait a second, what about Cassandra Cain?" Mm-hmm. And I know Don would appreciate that because sure. that was my first thought. And then people kept replying with it. And I felt, and then, and I, and I don't reply to these things because I don't want to come off as like a mansplaining <laughs> fanboy. Yeah. But my second thought was, uh, 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 the first Batgirl was a blonde. Sure. <laughs> but that is but true. it was Bat. But, but at the same time, you know, I guess I don't, uh, I, I think anybody could play Batgirl, mm-hmm. honestly, as long as it's a good, we saw with Wonder Woman, if if the script is good mm-hmm. and the director is good, the movie will be good. And that's the general rule for movies. And it would be cool to see um, just about anybody as long as it's not like Jennifer Lawrence or somebody. So, <laughs> well, I heard I'm sorry. That- I'm a little tired. <laughs> I- I've heard – first of all, I've heard Red Sparrow is terrible. Really? In other words, like replacement Black Widow movie. I mean that's what everyone was saying. But so it wasn't – it's not been good? Yeah, the reviews are crap. It's like they're saying they're like two – the Post gave it two stars mm-hmm. and it's like they're talking about how it kind of meanders and it doesn't know what it wants to do. And like when I first saw the advertisement for it, my exact words were, wasn't this the black movie that Marvel, Marvel should have made like seven years ago? Yeah. yeah I, I don't understand why we haven't had a Black Widow movie. But that's a totally different topic. It has nothing to do with Barbara Gordon. No. Um, but no, I, that's all I saw was that and, and uh, so I'm – 
cautiously optimistic. Yeah. You know, the DC movies haven't been set in my world yeah, on fire. Yeah, unfortunately, so. that is true. But don't forget, we're going to need the Zack Snyder cut of Batgirl. Mm. <laughs> oh, gosh. Sure. Because unless we have – because we need, we need that because that way – I don't know, like, because if we don't get it, then we clearly don't understand Zack Snyder's vision or something. I don't know. Is that what people say? That's what I hear. Okay. I do. So a lot of people like Joss Whedon, and I guess because of what he did with Buffy and the Marvel films. So I think when he was on board, people were super excited about it. And I thought to myself, okay, I mean, you know, I guess he can deal with female characters. But then when it comes out that he's going to be leaning on New 52 for some uh, some backstory and material, I thought, I'm, I'm a little concerned right now. And then, of course, the rumors were coming out about his personal life, you know, in this current uh-huh. cultural client, climate. And then you're like, I think maybe something needs to change there. And I'm glad that he's off, not to be like a vindictive person, but quite honestly, why can't a woman – write or direct it you know a black man has now become i think the highest grossing director ever for a black you know a black man with black panther so why can't we have you know more people represent what they're filming uh just like we had with jenkins i can't remember her first name patty, patty jenkins thank you and wonder yeah. Woman, which is wonderful so why not so i i think it is rumor uh, what were you talking about with the uh the director. But what's interesting with Joss Whedon is that uh, he says he walked away because he couldn't, like, figure out the story. And I thought, give me a break. I've got some, I've got a document on my computer right now that's a, uh, an outline for, uh, you know, an Elseworlds story of Barbara Gordon's origins. I could write a script on it. It's so, I don't know about that. So just get, get his, get his agent's address. Get on Amazon and send him Batgirl Year One. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, if you want to take comic source material, mm-hmm. I, I mean, you're a better, you're more of a Batgirl expert than I am. But like, I was, I look at that and I'm like, you know, you might have to trim a few things, but yeah. that's a pretty. I really like Batgirl Year One. It's a great, great comic. I agree. And 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 make no mention of the killing joke anywhere like that does not need to be in a movie yes, i'm sorry i agree with you and it's interesting because i watched this youtuber talk about you know joss whedon weeding and she was talking about her story ideas and she thinks that the movie should like potentially start with her getting shot and then go into being oh. oracle and i thought Ooh. and she also oh. didn't like the back row year one idea because she thought it was too much like girl power and maybe it needed to have maybe it'd be tone deaf and i thought to myself What's wrong with the girl power? What's wrong with having the character in the Batman family that is brighter and more optimistic to have a brighter tone than the dark, dark, dark that we have in the DC Universe films right now? I don't don't see anything wrong with that. Plus, isn't like um, a huge audience for Batgirl getting her through the DC superhero girl stuff? Right, right, yeah. So when that – by the time that gets made, the first kind of wave of those kids will be a little older and be like the age to do a PG-13. Mm-hmm. Batgirl movie, yep. so a lighter tone definitely helps. It's more marketable than like you know, dark, 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 <laughs> which we'll get when we get the Zack Snyder cut. Oh man! So yeah. <laughs> in tone and color, um, I suppose. Yeah, I do. I there was a rumor that Lindsay Lohan was really going for that role, and I thought, please no, <laughs> please no. I was seeing it pop up when I was opening my Google tabs. You could have Amanda Bynes play Velvet Tiger. Oh, my gosh. Oh, that would be awful. Martin Gray would love that. You know, I'd be fine with another ethnicity. I kind of am a stickler, though, for Barbara Gordon having red hair. 
But I don't see any reason why a black woman or, you know, an Asian woman could have red hair potentially. Even if it's like a, a wig, like maybe that's part of her change. You're like a Kate Kane. Yes, just like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I was, that's one of the things I really like about the Kate Kane costume mm-hmm. is how that long red hair is a wig. Right. I always thought that was really cool. So. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to it. If it's Barbara Gordon, I've got certain ideas, but I would not be against having a, another Batgirl pop in like Cassandra Cain I think would be great but it's nice to have I think if you did Barbara Gordon and just had her that one solo movie you could transition her somehow into Oracle and then have you know someone else take up the the cow as Batgirl too so I think she could create a legacy of her own which I think would be amazing yeah I wonder how you could make her Oracle without doing killing you yeah like uh, I don't be like you gotta cripple her but there is something there, like you, oh God, we've had you've had this conversation with people about how you know, and we've read about how it is on some level, you know, empowering sure. to see somebody in a wheelchair being this great character. Right. So if there's a way that it's, yeah, it's just killing jokes. The the her her crippling and the killing jokes seem so gratuitous right. to me, and I know I get fans playing to the nth degree out of here on this, but I just I don't, you know, I feel like. If it were not for John Ostrander, mm-hmm. this character wouldn't be really be around. Right. She'd be a footnote, yeah. you know. And, and I, I, I guess I wonder if there is a way to do Oracle without having to bring the Killing Joke into it. Mm-hmm. Like she somehow gravely injured in battle or something, mm-hmm. something, something that you know, you know, that's a little more noble and you know allows her to. Kind of like it, like it's a step on the hero's journey or something. Yeah, something literally, literarily. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, or more perhaps of an emotional crippling, like maybe a terrible last case, and so she decides she can't be in the field anymore, but decides to like work behind the computer. But with that, you yeah. do lose, I think, representation for disabled people, and and they yeah. have so little, you know, to choose from right now on, on the screen and say, oh, you know, that's just like me, yeah. which is really sad. So I would hope yeah. that there'd be someone for them. But yeah, it's you're right. It's all about the journey. How do you get there? Because so. yeah. I'd love to see, like, if you were to do one more than one movie and you wanted to make her somewhere along a line, like not in a first movie, but like in a third or whatever, that she's Oracle and like... Cass Kane or Stephanie Brown is Batgirl and it's kind of like a Batman Beyond thing mm-hmm. where she's the she's the mentor and 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 Steph or Cass is the kid and that would be a cool movie too. Yeah. Oh man. Well, I guess we'll we'll see. You know, if that Margot Robbie project keeps going with Gotham City Sirens, it'd be the perfect way to introduce Batgirl just, you know, at the tail end or something and then, you know, have a transition mm-hmm. over, but we'll see how that goes cuz that could be good. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what DC <sighs> does to to right the ship. Yeah. Because... Well, do you think it was righted a little bit? Have we talked about? Have you seen Justice League? I haven't seen Justice okay. League. Okay, I so. guess you can't. I I, I I I plan on seeing. Okay. It. I just I haven't I hadn't had a chance yet. Okay. But um, I was waiting for the the Blu-ray, so I'll probably uh, rent it from Amazon or something to stream it because I just didn't get a chance to the theater, and I heard really good things about it, but. Good things are no good things in terms of reviews. The movie tanked. Mm, yeah. And, you know, Warner's is going to look at its bottom line mm-hmm. in that regard. So yeah. It is all about the know. money. Yeah. But Wonder Woman did really well. Yes, she did. So it's it's weird. It's really weird. So maybe because, you know, 
But we again, we haven't got the Zack Snyder cut of Wonder Woman either. So you know, <laughs> we need the oh Snyder gosh. cut of all the DC movies oh, of super of yeah. Superman from 1978. There oh. is a Snyder cut out there. Yeah, I'm sure there is. So, all right, I, I've, I'm done beating that joke. That horse is glue. <laughs> okay. The last thing I wanted to do is a bit of a, a debate topic, I suppose, or just a discussion topic. And it sort of reminded me of, you know, we always have discussion topics over at Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is a little plug there. But this is great because I brought it up on the previous episode, and it's good that you're on now so that I can talk with you about it. But if sure. you recall in the previous backroll, the one uh, that I sent you, 19, I think it was, part one of, of this the Blizzard story that we're reading. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of uh, very heavy-hitting political jokes where Spur, those three guys, you know, playing their little um, Settlers of Catan game, basically said we, we gave up the gig because we figured the government was already ruining itself. And so I wasn't sure what place comments like that has potentially in comics and in particular because we could talk about all sorts of things, TV, you know, mm-hmm. books and things like that. But do you think comics in particular are are a place to criticize, you know, the current government or culture? Or do you think maybe we should leave that out of comics because they are a form of escapism? Why do we need to be reminded of the current stuff that's going on? Don and Harry are totally jealous right now. Uh, <laughs> tonight on Questions No Answers, oh, that's uh, funny. plug for another great yeah, podcast. There you go. Um, that particular joke, I think, works because it's such an eternal joke. Politicians are corrupt. The government screwed up everything. That's been that, those are jokes that have been going on since I don't know. I'm I'm 40 and I've heard those jokes in my lifetime. You know, general politician jokes. So I think in that context it is. I don't know. I think I've heard this conversation and I've heard this argument on a number of other podcasts, especially when it comes to Superman. Mm. When Superman makes a stand for something, there seems to be a lot of this sort of, you know, backlash from certain uh, people of certain political persuasions. Like, you know, you're, you're using this character to push your own political agenda writer um and uh, you know sometimes it like in terms of these stories sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and um like but at the same time like art is art is meant to interact with the world and if i'm thinking of comics as a medium an art medium like it is certainly within its right to criticize the government or the culture and but like you know they, then w- I think you can do that, but then you can have a discussion on when it works and when it doesn't work. Because like you know the comics have been criticizing government or culture or have been speaking politically since comics started. You know I mean you you can't swing a dead cat through cover galleries of the 1940s without hitting a World War II. You know like <laughs> like the cover sort of. of- saying is that you've never heard that expression oh, it's a Thomism for sure no it's not that is a <laughs> that is a well-known expression anyway but you, like you've seen a lot of 40, 1940s covers where it's like you know where there's no story about World War II inside of it but like Superman's like you know smacking a, a Nazi <laughs> sure, or, sure. or or Batman there's like there was one I read I have in my I have on my comicsology. 
either it's like three or it's a it's an old Batman issue, like issue like nine or ten or something of Batman, and and the the cover is like him and Robin with like one of those Gatling guns, like you know that they would have, and they're firing it, and it doesn't happen in the issue, but it's clearly like you know I think there might even be one of those like support the fourth war bond or like one of those. So comic creators have been using superheroes politically since superheroes started. I certainly think you can. Um, I, my my beef becomes not when um, superheroes take on a particular bent, but when you start writing the character out of character to prove a point. Mm-hmm. Like I felt like Mark Millar does that in Civil War, and I know that's a criticism that other people have levied against Civil War, the comic, not the uh, not the um, not the film. And sometimes, but and sometimes, it, and and the other the other thing I think you run the risk of is making a reference that becomes dated pretty quickly. Like you know, um, you know, if if you're if you're making a reference, there was you know, if you're making a reference to um, something that's like really trendy now, three years from now, if somebody picks up this back issue, they're going to be like, you know, what was PizzaGate or something oh, like that? Sure. Yeah, so you know what I mean. So. So yeah, I think it's within I think it's within reason that comics can be used to criticize government and, and culture. Yeah. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, I agree with you. I what you just said there, I, I thought about the reference and I think this won't date itself because it is so vague. It's just generally, you know, the government's just doing such a good job of ruining itself. It's just that we yeah, in this current uh, era yeah, are thinking very particularly about what does that mean. But I won't go into that even though Tom and I, I think are on the same page there. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I think I agree with you. I'm just, because it is a form of escapism and fun, I just worry about uh, how much is going to be done. And I think it also depends upon the character. I think Oliver Mm -hmm. Queen, for one, is something that, given his liberal bent and he was mayor, I think absolutely it's suited for that sort of thing. This Batgirl... I'm not exactly as sure if it was the place for it. And that's why I think I'm bringing this up because it seemed very strange. If it were any other character, I think I would have just rolled with it. But this current era of Barbara Gordon didn't have her Congress, uh, her seat in Congress. So, you know, it's not like she would have any reason to comment on that. And I know it's coming from Spur. It's not coming from her. But and I and, you know, she's supposed to be. You know, this audience, I guess you could go back and forth about who the audience is. But I always think, like, Batgirl is meant for a very particular audience, and then there are other people who like her. You know, I think generally, you know, she's for female characters who are looking for uh, an empowered role model and, uh, you know, someone who's smart and witty and she doesn't have superpowers, so she's very much an every woman. And, you know, our younger girls who are picking this up, are they going to care about a governmental criticism? So that's my only, my only little quaff against Mm. it is sort of where where does it need to happen i think absolutely i think there were probably big what was it orpheus orpheus rising that batman i think wasn't there a lot of does this sound familiar to you it it, vaguely but it's not something i think he yeah and so this is i know that don did this as a special with somebody and i think there was a lot of uh, commentary on sort of black people in america and how that was relating Mm -hmm. to the superhero world so i think there are there are certain places uh to do that and and you can absolutely do it but when i read my back roll you know it's not like i'm saying i can't have a serious story but i almost wonder with all the joking that was going around in that scene was that potentially the place for for the criticism i wonder if 
like not politics, but certain social things could be ripe for commentary in this iteration of Batgirl, like all, going all the way back to the beginning of the Burnside run because she's ensconced in like the technology sector. So you could conceivably have subtle criticisms of like corporate America culture and startup culture, mm-hmm. especially since she's a woman mm-hmm. in that culture. And this is a very bro dominated sure, culture. Yeah. And also, and this is something that I think on some level that if you're, if you're, if your audience is, I, you know, I don't know what the, I'd have to look up the demographics on the actual, who's actually buying the yeah. book, but you know, let's say for sake of argument, it's like the same women and girls who might also be reading like young adult fiction. So I'm thinking like teenage girls might be like one of the core audiences for this comic and maybe a little older. So like they might, you know, seeing technology and seeing the type of technology she's involved in or that she uses, like it connects with them so that there's sort of a criticism or, Hey, here's an example of a woman in technology and things. I I don't know if we're, from what I've read of this, I don't know if we're, always getting that um the other criticism that i think might go over the head of the audience so i wouldn't necessarily introduce it is that she's essentially living in brooklyn Mm. i know it's not brooklyn but it's a very a brooklyn-esque area of i was i was getting the impression that brooklyn the the burnside is the brooklyn to gotham Mm. and the way that it's become this sort of brooklyn has the Brooklyn that my father grew up in in the 50s, in the 40s and 50s, is not the Brooklyn of now. The Brooklyn of now is this gentrified hipster. A lot of it is this gentrified hipster place that is a lot like Portland or other places like that. And you could, if you had an older audience who really was looking for this sort of stuff, have a commentary on like gentrification and race and class and how people are being pushed out of cities by <laughs> – you know, middle upper upper middle class white people, you know, who want a trendy neighborhood mm-hmm. and things like that. I, I don't think it would necessarily work within the book, but there's an opportunity. Yeah, for and that's something they're doing over with Ms. Marvel, or they were at one point. But there's also sort of a racial commentary there because, of course, Ms. Marvel is you know Muslim American, so they're pushing those sorts of people out as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for indulging in my uh, in my question. Hey, no problem. Hold on a second. There's something on my mic. Okay. <laughs> All right. There we go. If you're there was a ladybug crawling oh, on my mic. Oh, for luck. So I, I had to I, I had to I had to take a piece of paper and just kind of slide it under and <laughs> get the ladybug to fly away. Okay. So, uh, if you guys, I didn't want to hurt the ladybug. I, I just but I didn't want it crawling on my mic. That, by the way. So everyone, I think you've just raised five million points in their esteem because you saved okay, that, that I, ladybug. You don't you don't kill ladybugs. It's not something that they, they're not bugs that need to be killed. That's what so I think as well, but some people you don't kill stink bugs either. But that's a whole other <gasps> reason. That is true because of that smell, man. <laughs> Uh, if you're interested in listening more about this topic, I was actually typing uh, Don on Skype as you were talking to, just to say that you dropped their name. And he s- said uh, that I guess the, the topic related to it was should superheroes be made only for children? So if you want to, you can go on QNoAnswers.com, and that's one of those episodes that you could potentially look for. Okay. Well, now we've come to it. 
our vintage reviews, and a lot of it's going to be recap. And uh, I just have to say, I'm very appreciative for my co-host here because he, in my opinion, goes above and beyond. And sometimes when I say I don't have this issue, but it says Becker appears, he says, wait a minute, let me go see. And then he finds it and then basically tells me we don't need to worry about that, but I'll give a little recap anyway. So I'm very appreciative for the work you put into these, but this is going to be Tom's time to shine, and we are going to review one of these particular issues. So Tom, you can take it away. Okay, so there are a few books in our Viewmaster this time around. Mm -hmm. We have Wonder Woman Volume 2, number 144. We have JLA Secret Files and Origins, number 2. And that JLA Secret Files and Origins is the one that we're going to review in full. JLA 24 and JLA 26. Uh, While the Secret Files and Origins story actually comes first... Like kind of chronologically sure. or whatever, uh, we're going to cover it in depth. So I'm going to get to that one last, and I'll get to the other, do the others first. So the Wonder Woman issue, Wonder Woman Volume Two, Number One Forty Four, is from the period where Eric Luke was writing the book with Yannick Paquette and Bob McLeod on the art. Um, this is right after John Byrne's tenure on the title. Uh, it's before Phil Jimenez takes mm-hmm. over. Uh, the cover, by the way is one of a number of um, Adam Hughes's gorgeous, gorgeous covers. It's it's just like Adam Hughes had this. If, if anybody is familiar with Wonder Woman in the late 90s and early 2000s, um, and even in the mid-90s, like Brian Ballin had a long run of really, really good Wonder Woman covers, um, one of which is like really iconic, has her standing with the sword and the shield that was made into a Christmas ornament at one point, actually, <laughs> wow. in a poster. But then... Adam Hughes did just this. It, it was you'd know the cover if you saw it. It's it's just a it's a gorgeous cover. Um, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, did some really great covers. Um, and then Adam Hughes has this run of Wonder Woman covers that are, I mean, they're gorgeous because they're Adam Hughes. But it's just they're just so so great. Anyway, at this point, we're in the second part of what I believe is a four part storyline called Devastation. Um, Oracle appears in this a couple of times. First, we see her relay information to Diana while Diana is getting a pretty bad wound taken care of. Of course, she says, "'Tis but a scratch." (laughs) And uh, that information uh, that Oracle gives her is regarding where this villainous name Devastation is going to strike next. We see Oracle in both her computer projection and behind-the-screen identity. And she directs Diana to a nuclear waste transport in Georgia that is being hijacked by the citizens of a South Carolina town. She asks Diana if the rest of the league is needed. Diana says no, she can do this on her own. Oracle next appears as a voice only over Wonder Woman's communicator. She tells Diana that basically several southern states are threatening to go completely rogue from the rest of the country. And based on what is in the issue, I think this is the doing of this villainess called Devastation, who can cause devastation (laughs) wherever she goes, I guess. Um, I haven't read any other parts of the storyline, but I'm assuming that's that's the idea. Also of note, by the way, I should say, is that there's a subplot running through uh, this book. So there's a couple of interludes that show Artemis, who had been the takeover Wonder Woman in the end of the Messner Loeb's run had died and I believe had was obviously had come back by now. She's training uh, Cassie Sansmark, mm. who is just starting her time as Wonder Girl or she's just about to be Wonder Girl. And this is like early in Cassie's career where she was wearing like the glasses and the black oh, wig yes. in, instead of like because later on she would just be um, she's blonde and later on she'd have various um, uniforms um, that were kind of changed as the character was shown getting older and older. 
So let's go into JLA. Uh, the last time I talked about Oracle on the, in the JLA comic, we finished with issue 19. Now, Barbara is not in 2021, 20, 22, or 23 because those are outer space adventures with Adam, Adam Strange and a storyline involving Starro. Issues 24 through 26 are a three-parter where General Wayne Eiling introduces the world to the Ultramarine Corps. He has them retrieve the old JLA villain, the Shaggy Man, and then has them fight the JLA. Barbara has a panel in issue number 24 where she tells Batman that conspiracy theorists on the internet are saying that Eiling is part of some black ops agency called the Cabal and then draws their attention to the Ultramarine's attack on Phoenix. Meanwhile, Eiling transfers his consciousness into the body of the Shaggy Man and takes on Batman and Plastic Man. Oracle shows up for a panel in issue 26 to tell the members of the League who are fighting the Ultramarines the coordinates that they need and information about Eiling that Batman had sent her way. The storyline ends with Eiling defeated, the Ultramarines inhabiting and protecting a floating city named Superbia, and the Hour Man of the the 853rd century, which we all learned about last yes. issue with Mike, arriving on Earth and Johnny Thunder's Thunderbolt finding a new friend. Also important to later storylines is the fact that the name Mageddon appears in the source wall of New Genesis. And that will be important to the World War Three storyline, which is the last trade of the Morrison run that I have. And by the way, the, the, the JLA issues are collected in a number of trades. Uh, they were first collected in the Justice for All trade. Uh, that's the one that I have, which came out in the early 2000s. And I don't know if the Wonder Woman issue was collected in a trade paperback, but it is available on Comixology because I have it digitally. So, And I bought it by uh, legitimate means. Ooh. Yeah. So um, let's talk JLA Secret Files and Origins number two. This was released on June 17th, 1998. The cover date was August of 98. The price was $3.95, which I believe because it was an oversized comic. Now, we should start off with a couple of notes here. Uh, this contains two stories in the issues. One is called Heroes and the other, called, other is called The Secrets of the JLA Trophy Room. Uh, it also features a number of who's who type of entries. Uh, that's the secret files part of this the whole thing. Uh, very often these would be updated profile cards for characters in the book or they'd spotlight um, recent or upcoming villains. Uh, the stories themselves were usually smaller vignettes that spotlighted a couple of different characters or in some cases addressed a long neglected piece of continuity. Uh, we'd see something like this in a number of the Teen Titans and Titans secret files and origins books over the years. So it's almost like DC took that showcase anthology series, uh, especially the one they've been running in the mid-90s, and they kind of took who's who and they smushed them together to try to create something that would be like a, a special that would come out every every once in a while because annuals were starting to fall out of favor. Okay. I know they were still doing them, but there was a point in I think in the mid-2000s where they really weren't doing them at all. Anyway, the other note that I have is that this was published the same month as JLA number 21, which came out a week later on June 24th. Uh, however, the trade paperback I have, which is Strength in Numbers, collect that's the collection. That came out in November of 98. They put the first story, Heroes, from Secret Violent Origin in the very, very front of the pa trade paperback. Um, it takes place before JLA 21. Because it, in this story, Superman's still in his electric blue costume by issue 21 of JLA. He's in his classic look, so the, that whole storyline was over. And this is – I believe it's supposed to take place like 
right after the end of the Rock of Ages story where the League officially disbanded, but we've been going by publication date, so we're just going to put it here. So, yeah. All right, so we're going to cover it. Let's go. Our story, as I mentioned, is called Heroes. Your creative team is Christopher Priest, writer, Yannick Paquette, penciler, Mark Lipka, inker, Kurt Hathaway, letterer, Pat Garrahy, <laughs> colorist, digital chameleon, separator, L.A. Williams, assistant editor, and Dan Raspler was your editor. We open on New Genesis, where Light Ray flies through the air and comes upon a group of dark side soldiers making some sort of move on his homeland. Thankfully, Orion is there and he's in full cry havoc and lets slip to the dogs <laughs> of war mode. Plug for another episode of another show yeah. that we do. Um, beware the Ides of March, people, and listen to Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Yeah. So the soldiers make a hasty retreat because at that point, when you see that, when you see Orion looking at you like that, you you cut tail and run if you want to survive. Uh, Light Ray flies down to see if Orion is okay, and they briefly discuss the fact that Tachyon, who is the new High Father, is sending him and Big Barda to Earth. Earth is where we cut to as Aquaman stands in a field wearing a very mid-90s ensemble. His harpoon hand and his hair has uh, – he's got his harpoon hand and he's got hair that has so much body that Wonder Woman would be jealous. Superman, who is disguised as Clark Kent, walks up to him and Aquaman comments about how beautiful the Midwest is and they talk about why they are heroes. Clark makes a point about being the person charged with helping humanity and the world, which Aquaman refers to as arrogant. Clark said that he's been called worse, and he mentions that it's getting dark, which means he'll be there soon. We cut to Gotham City, where Oracle narrates, Almost 9 p.m. and the storm's not letting up. Makes crawling into the maintenance tubes a lot like sticking a wet fork into a toaster. Wonder if he knows that. The he, of course, is Batman, who reminds her that the clock is running. He's not listening. He's there in that place, staring down the creatures in his head, a one-track mind with no call waiting. Talk about a dated reference. <laughs> she she appears to be actually inside um, a huge computer, like Mission Impossible style, you know, with Tom, that scene with Tom Cruise hanging down and, you know, and she's poking and prodding around various circuit boards. Uh, Batman gives her more grief about how long she's taking, and then she asks him why it is it that he wants her to tap into the main computer on the JLA Watchtower. His reply, well, it's the very Batman, I have my reasons. <laughs> We then pan to the street below where Huntress, who must be using the same shampoo and conditioner as Aquaman, because seriously, the body on her hair uh, is beating up some crooks. Batman interrupts her, and she's all, great, what did I do now? Batman points out that one of the guys she's smacking around is a cop, which she should have known by looking at the checkbook in his pocket. Batman swings off, and Huntress is about to head home when she finds a note with a key on Bat letterhead that says, Robinson Park, Maintenance Shed, Number 12. Helena heads home to shower and grade papers. She chucks the note out her window, but then she reconsiders. Next, we're back with Superman and Aquaman, who are in small Kent house. Pa bows to the king of Atlantis while Ma offers them some pie, probably rhubarb pie. Bebop, rebop, frozen rhubarb pie and frozen rhubarb pie filling. Wouldn't this be a good time for a piece of rhubarb pie? Yes, 
one little thing can revive a gun, and that is a piece of rhubarb pie. Serve it up nice and hot. Maybe things aren't as bad as you thought. Mama's little baby loves rhubarb, 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 rhubarb pie. Mama's little baby loves rhubarb, 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 rhubarb pie. Then they head to the, into the kitchen because Batman has been sitting there for a few minutes. The three discuss possible candidates for membership. Back in the computer, Barbara narrates, oh, shut up. And then he, then she is lectured at by Batman that since the Watchtower is going to have some guests, they need to get security protocols up. She snarkily narrates, we, this has nothing to do with him, always needing to be one step ahead of the gods probably the only way to deal with them men in disguises who have a clubhouse on the it's already there and sitting by gardener warrior who says he is officially getting things started iron's niece natasha walks by with her friend boris and then we see aquaman recruit zoriel next we cut to huntress who is at robinson park and to go to and oracle narrates she holds the singular significance of being the only hero in Gotham he never mentions, the black sheep of the family. Bottom line, Huntress is operating in Batman's town, and Batman plays for keeps, makes moves only he understands. Huntress enters the shed and walks right into a teleporter that takes her to the watchtower, where she is met by who runs off. And when he realizes that... She's not Bannon because he needs to get back to the main room before everyone kills Guy Gardner. Oracle narrates, you're an Olympus among the par pantheon. And actually, I think I'd give anything to switch places with does show up and stares down Guy who walks away. Huntress basically says no way to this because of the way Batman was all shady about getting her in without asking her. She leaves and comes across Boris. Natasha says that Huntress looks like one of them to which Barbara narrates, sing it, sister, whoever you are. And then Huntress says that she has no idea why Batman sponsored her. Natasha is all, well, who cares? Just be a superhero. This gets Helena to change her mind. and She heads into the conference room where the meeting is called to order. And we see that they are all gathered around the table that has one empty chair. That chair is Oracle's. Superman says, I'm pleased to call to order the new league. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a world to save. Oracle narrates a world saver. That's quite a promotion for me. Wonder if he knows that. Oh, boy. And that's the story. <laughs> I uh, actually, until you recapped it, I didn't catch the Boris and Natasha significance. So <laughs> with Moose and Squirrel and, and Rocky and Bullwinkle, wow. I, when I was reading it, I completely <laughs> missed that. Wow. When our last episode was switched off in utter disgust by over 37 million anxious viewers, those two wrongs, Boris and Natasha, were proving they couldn't make a right. A right bad idea. Think, darling, think. There must be something really rotten we can do today. I'm thinking. But the worst I come up with is helping to make Moose and Squirrel show one hour longer. Oh, just like you, darling. Always trying to help others get a little more pain out of life. Then suddenly a thought struck him like a 20,000-volt charge. Boris, you have great idea. No, but I have defective cord on electric pencil sharpener. I have it, darling. A contest. I like being evil because in 25 words or less. I like it. I like it. I really liked this. At first, when it started off with Orion, I wasn't really digging it. Luckily, that was only one page, and I was trying to figure out how that all went together. 
But it was interesting to see the discussions between, I guess, the three main people at that point in time, which Aquaman was a main person, which is interesting, and coming up with who's going to be in this league and, of course, focusing on Oracle and Huntress, which I think are two unlikely people, and I guess Steel to a certain extent, but I think Huntress and Oracle being unlikely candidates, but, of course, in the end, Oracle absolutely makes sense to be a member of the JLA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we and and as we go through, there's a, there's a couple of the storylines that I've been reading um, that we've been reading together, or at least I've been reading through as we you know sure. recap and, and find the issues where she appears, where she's not used as much as she really could right. be. So I, I, I wonder, like, because like from like I said, she doesn't appear from like twenty to twenty three, and then she's in like what like three or four panels in that whole Wayne Eiling Shaggy Man storyline, and it does start to beg the question, like. Why did Grant Morrison have her join the JLA? Now, granted, down the road, I believe she plays a bigger role. So it is kind of like a, a, from out the gate, she, there's like he's got he, there's a reason he put her there, and I don't think we're there yet. But for the first part, you're just kind of like, well, why is she here if she's just kind of running communications, right. and you know that, and, and she shows up only to tell Batman where something is in the JLA Titans miniseries, which. Morrison didn't write. She's there a little bit more, but um, but yeah, I, I um, it, it is an interesting thing. But I, I do like the fact that she's in the JLA, and I always I did like her as um, w- when they put her to good use. I, I think she's she's a great addition to the team. Right. To be honest, absolutely. With you. And we've seen, you know, as as fans and listeners of BTO and me and my history. I've seen her with interesting characters and uh, people that you wouldn't imagine her helping out. She's certainly got her her hands in every place. But Batman and that family has really been her go-to place. So I think she very much has just, you know, like she said, she really does have a promotion here. And now she's she's going to have her, her fingers in all the pies all over the place. And, and I think that shows how much respect the character deserves. And, and she is absolutely, it's not like it's unwarranted. And I think it's not unbelievable that she should be in this position and be just like Jean Jones, as we see in some of those JLA titles, one of the people that is coordinating all of the efforts surrounding yeah. a particular mission. Mm-hmm. What yeah. did you think about uh, Batman in here? And I, I will just shortly say that I felt like he was a bit of a jerk in this story, but I wondered what your thoughts Yeah, definitely. Uh, he's just so – it's like – I don't know. It's this is this is getting into the this is getting into that whole thing of like you know Batman just being a just a total jerk and and not knowing like not knowing when to unclench and and being very sort of like you know that really just crappy parent cliche of like I'm going to be really hard on you but I secretly love you and I, you know whatever. I, I necessarily agree with you. I'm like, you know, I, I get it. Like, you know, so this is like the test you're putting her through to get her so that she can join the JLA or, or whatever. And then like, you know, all of this sort of secrecy with Huntress because he like, just doesn't know how to talk to anybody, but he's always, this era of Batman has always had his problem. Like he has his problems uh, talking to Tim and Dick from what I remember. I mean, it's been a while since I've, I've read anything from around this time, but I mean, earlier on in, in, in the, early nineties with a lonely place of dying and like those storylines, you know, his relationship with Nightwing was 
you know, kind of the same way where he was just like always like gruff and short with them and you know so but yeah you're right he's he's kind of a jerk here and i felt like even he's you know absolutely could be testing oracle but i think there's still like and and you know josh and don get on me about this maybe more so don but i always feel like there's some tension between oracle and batman i really don't think that they're in the same place that they were prior to the killing joke and so when i'm reading her voiceover and the way she's emphasizing certain words and in her mind talking back to him you know because i think her snarkiness that's just her character when she's speaking aloud but her internal dialogue i think shows that there is still some resentment or tension towards him am i reading into things or what did you get out of some of those voiceovers i can definitely see that i i I wonder if she thinks that sometimes he he's just using her for like he's so bad at showing he cares Mm -hmm. That, you know, like, is if he didn't have a use for her, would he be paying this much attention to her? And maybe that's running through her head, you know, not that she's needy. I don't want it to I don't want my analysis there to come off as like if she's like, you know, worried that Batman's not going to like her. But this sort of like kind of skeptically looking at him like, you know, you're only you're only talking to me because you want something, you know, like oh, that sort of yeah. that sort of thing. Yep. And. I don't know. I know maybe, and maybe he's also being overprotective. Maybe he uh, does. He blame himself at all for what happened to her? I I, I certainly think so, but I don't know if is, yeah. <laughs> is this certainly. I guess it's this just is, a way. Of, this is him, right? Always pushing people yeah. away to a certain extent. But yeah, yeah. It's. I, I think maybe that's just a, an expression of that. Where and and I like the fact that she it doesn't really take it. You know. Mm-hmm. She doesn't. She doesn't let it bother. I think it bothers her, but she doesn't let it bother her to the point where she's like, "Oh, doesn't he like right. me?" Like you know that she's she's gonna be a tryhard because of it. Mm-hmm. She's she's just like, "All right, whatever." Yeah, you know. And she's already proven that she can. She has her own place in this universe yeah. apart from him. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, yeah. I'm just looking at. I don't know what page this is, but it says, you know, we need to get the security protocols. And she says, we, this has nothing to do with me. You know, this is him (laughs) needing to always be one step ahead of the gods. And I just feel like, yeah, there's some resentment there and annoyance, but. Yeah. Well, it's it's that stupid Batman thing of, well, this is almost for you for the whole time because it's obvious this is like her little initiation into the JLA. This is his way of asking her to join the JLA. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't asked before this because she's like, this has nothing to do with uh, me. And then at the end, it's like, oh, guess what? You're the member in the same way that <laughs> like in the same way that like he he doesn't directly ask Huntress. Mm-hmm. He's just like, you know, like you're, you know, I want you in like this sort of like enigmatic like sure. stop being such a jerk. <laughs> like, yeah, which is interesting if we move on to Huntress. It's a bit of a puzzle why he asked her at all. And I'm, I try to be on the side of Huntress. I always, you know, I try to defend her to a certain extent and see, you know, does Batman tr- trust her, yes or no? And a lot of people are saying, no, of course not, nor should he. And even in this issue, he's criticizing the way that she basically messed up and, and took down a, oh, yeah. you know, messed up a sting. 
and we'll see later on that, you know, he's not fully trusting of her. So why do you think he decides to give her membership? Is this to show, give her something to step into and, and hopefully give her a chance and maybe she'll become a better version of the Huntress? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that too, because I think one of the th- reasons he keeps such tabs on the Huntress is that like, it's this weird sort of, I disagree with the way she handles things because um, Helena certainly would not be a of killing somebody if it meant that she had to and she's certainly more brutal on some level than Bruce is so I think he maintains a close relationship with her to keep an eye on her mm-hmm. but at the same time like he had he probably admires her her passion for this crusade even if he doesn't agree with her methods so it's sort of a it's like a, a love-hate thing in a way you know that so maybe he you're right he thinks if he, if I give her this she'll She'll straighten up. Like all she needs is the proper motivation and she'll do this the right way this time Mm -hmm. or something. Again, Batman's arrogant. (laughs) Uh, He is. He is arrogant, especially in this era. He's really arrogant. So. Well, it's funny you were talking about all the volumized hair and uh, Barbara. It's so big. <laughs> Barbara's is pretty under control, but she it is longer right now. Normally, it's it's sort of the the short bob, I yeah, guess you could bob. say, and and this one's longer and has ponytail. Prof, prof, and I always like to talk about that. But I really liked seeing how she gets around and sort of this technological hole that she's got around and using these cables to maneuver herself. I thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. I always like to see how she gets around and exercising like that points those points of her life i really enjoy seeing on paper yeah yeah that that's i always like seeing that stuff yeah. too because you know it, it it allows the artist and the writer to show her doing something more than just having her sit behind a computer terminal yep. in a way that logically makes sense within the story Yep. So I've always, I always like seeing that stuff out of her. And it shows, you know, what someone that was unable to walk would do in that situation that's, you know, true to life as well. So I think that's great. Yeah. Uh, so I mentioned this before, but I wonder <laughs> why anyone would choose Plastic Man over Elongated Man. Do you agree with this decision? Maybe it's just me, but I really like Ralph Dibney, <laughs> and I feel like he's more centered and... I don't know. I just feel like he'd be a better fit for the team. But what are your thoughts on this? I love Ralph Dibney as well. I'm not sure why you go with Plastic Man <laughs> over Elongated <laughs> Man. You. I know there are Plastic Man fans out there. Um, he has his moments. Sure. He has some really funny moments. You've a JLA Avengers, right? I don't know that I have, actually. In the first issue of JLA Avengers, the JLA arrives on the Marvel Earth. And Batman's basically like, you know, let's not mess around around here too much. Let's go what we got to get and get out of here, whatever it is, whatever he says. And all of a sudden, like, he disappears because they show a panel of the Punisher and then, the, like a little bit, t- a little bit later, Plastic Man is basically yelling at Batman about the fact that instead of following his own orders, he spent several minutes beating the crap out of the Punisher. <laughs> and it's it's one of the funnier moments. There's like a couple of really, really funny, genuinely funny moments in JLA Avengers. The other one is where <laughs> where Darkseid is holding the Infinity Gauntlet. He's like wearing it, and everybody is staring at him like, "Oh crap!" But he's in the DCU, and the Infinity Gauntlet doesn't work. 
Oh. But they're all like, they've all got this like, I'm crapping my pants look on their faces. Then he just, yeah. he's like, well, obviously this is important to you. So he throws it at the heroes. So, so there's, um, if anybody has never read JLA Avengers, go read that. It's so much fun. How many issues? It's four prestige format books. Okay. Maybe Cur- I'll put that on my comic you watch list or wish list. Kurt Busaic and George Perez. Oh. Oh, it's gorgeous. And it's such a great, great, great book. So anyway. Yeah. By the way, I think it's appropriate that you, you – that this episode is sponsored by the JLU cast. I did that on purpose. Yes. And you did it on purpose just to mess with me, I'm assuming. Oh. But do you know why it's appropriate? No. Shaq's sitting there going like, I know, I know, I know. Um, the scene in the JLA conference room, it's a full-plate splash where it's good late morning, ladies and gentlemen. I gar- I'm guard under water here, and it gives me great uh-huh. pleasure. That is a direct homage to the very first opening scene of Justice League, the Justice oh. League International book from okay. the Giffen de Mateus run. Yeah. It opens with him at the JLA conference room basically saying, I'm, I'm calling the JLA to order, the Justice League to order. Oh, so okay. He, Christopher Priest is having some fun with the, uh, with the old Giffen de Mateus JLA, JLA. I wondered if that a couple pages later, his face-off with Batman was <laughs> – isn't there a time when Batman like punches yeah, one, Guy Gardner in the face? Yep, one punch. <laughs> yeah, so I wondered one if punch. that was it. That was weird though. I mean, Guy Gardner, besides doing that, just walks off and has part. Maybe it was just to show that he uh, – I'm assuming that like since by this point, if this came out after issue 24 – when did this come out? I had read it going back through my notes. This came out after issue 21 – which was after, like, you know, was within that sort of, like, storyline where they had all joined and they faced Prometheus and everything, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, or it was in the Outer Space Adventures. So, like, this came out after, like, all of those and all these people had been in the league already. So maybe this was just kind of like we need to show how Guy Gardner found his way back into the Justice League. Let's just put him in here on the Watchtower. And then he shows up at the end. So somebody invited him. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe they think that, <laughs> I don't know, maybe he just kind of invited himself or maybe it was Kyle, but like, you know, it's, it, there's going to be no like contemplation on the part of Guy Gardner. Do you want to join the justice league? Yeah. You know? So it was, maybe it was just, okay, guys here next. Yeah. So, well, any other thoughts on heroes? I, I had forgotten that Natasha appeared so long ago. I guess she was part of the steel series back in the early nineties though, the, when steel had a solo series. Because um, I just remember – I remember her from like the mid-2000s and um, 52 and – Wasn't she – yeah, I was going to say because doesn't she get like some cybernetic – I believe so, I yeah. Don't know, implants or so and then has her own – they have their own team I think. Yeah, so she's – that's what I remember her from. But I think when I'm listening like from Crisis to Crisis, I think she's in the steel book. So I had – I had just like for a moment forgotten that she was there. And then like Huntress's costume <laughs> – like okay, my least favorite Huntress costume is that belly shirt one that Ed Benes would draw. Sure, but this is this is an odd one. Like I, I like it. There are times when I really like it because I like the all black with the purple. But there are times when I yep. don't, and because there's there's a couple of panels where like for instance, I don't know. I'm like, why does why do the purple reefs look like they're kind of like a half covering her butt? If like there was no black there, you know, and and the the 
the waist part of the front. It's like it's like she's wearing this weird like high cut kind of very risque bathing suit, but there's a black bodysuit underneath it. But then I was thinking maybe that's to distract criminals. You know, like you're wearing I mean, she's probably more athletic than then she's being drawn. So she probably, you know, like comic book artists and their proportions are not always <laughs> true to life. So like yes. she probably yep. is not carrying a, a C cup or whatever that is. But at the same time, I, I, so I wonder, like, I'm like, okay, if this person existed in the real world, maybe she's wearing parts of this costume the way they are designed so that she will distract the stupid men that she's taking down. And then you wonder, like sometimes with, with a costume like that are like, you know, it, the Kevlar, if she's wearing Kevlar and stuff or any sort of armor or whatever, it would probably squish things down. Maybe she kind of built those in so that they would be distracted kind of the way that Batman wears the yellow oval. I don't know. And I'm probably overthinking this. Scratch that. I am overthinking this. But like, <laughs> But like, you know, I'm just thinking like, you know, there's so many bad superheroine costumes out there that seem to serve no functional purpose. Sure. And, but I, I, I like the fact that she is covered from head to toe because it makes total sense if you're going to go out and fight at night. So, Because I've always liked this costume. I like the original Joe Staten costume as well. I've, I've always been a fan of that. Yeah. But that's in the order of the shag, she's hot sort of variety. So oh, Joe, Staten, Joe Staten's Huntress in the 70s is, is beautifully drawn. But no, that was the other thing. I just kind of noticed. I'm like, why is this? And I'm like, oh, maybe she's wearing it to distract. <laughs> to distract. But I've always liked Helena Bertinelli. As a character, yeah. and I've always mm-hmm. liked the whole – and I really should go back and hunt down that, um, no pun intended, that series that she had in the late 80s and early 90s. The Joey Cavalieri, I think, wrote it. Yes. Yeah, which I've never yeah. read. So uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll dive into the bins and see if I can find that in like the 50s or something. Go. Yeah. 50 cents, you say? That's too much profit. I, I don't come across a lot of quarter bins. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't think they exist in our little LCS. Fifty. The the DC and Marvel back issues are fifty cents at least for me since I have a pull box there. So I don't know if they're if they're fifty cents for everybody. But well, what would you give this out of? I don't know. What should we say? Ten volumizing shampoos. <laughs> I think that I would give it probably a nine. I think sometimes the art takes a little away. It's mm-hmm. not Yannick Paquette is, is a is a is a good penciler, so she, it, it's it's good. But I think I think the art dates it a little bit and just kind of takes that one little notch off of it. But um, but I would but I really think it's a great story and it's it's great for one of those specials where you have like all these little kind of vignette stories and it's like it answers this question of. Hey, you ever want to know like how all these people got invited into the Justice League? Mm-hmm. And I think a Secret Files and Origins is a place to do that when you don't if you felt that you didn't need to do that in the main title. So, uh, for a story like this, it's a really good story and I didn't find yeah. wrong with it. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I think I'd also give it 9 volumizing shampoos. And and the only thing I would say would be just, you know, the randomness of uh, Warrior and that he doesn't stay and then just that first page that threw me off and I kind of wanted it to come back into the Mm. story that you actually see Orion (laughs) and Big Barter there, but I guess they wanted to focus on the other people and have them appear later on. No, it was good. I'm glad we got to see the introduction of Oracle, even if it might be late. Uh, Sequentially, it was right on time, (laughs) publishing-wise. Yeah, that's cool. 
Uh, well, we do have some listener feedback. Mail time. Mail time. Mail time. Mail here. Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. Just two, actually, one email and one comment on the website. Uh, the first comment is from, or the only comment, really, is from Ian Miller on episode 154. And he, this was from Twitter, but I told him that I don't really take the comments from Twitter because there's so much stuff that's going on right now, in particular Coffee Wars, where it's me against everybody else, it seems. But, <laughs> so that's why I don't take anything from Twitter. So he's, yeah, 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 whatever. Talking about Clark made me think of a great quote from a fanfic. Here's the quote. When Superman smiled at you, it was like being dunked in a tub full of sunshine and then lightly dried off with a quilt of okayness, stitched together by hopes and dreams. If he had the time to hug everyone in the world, war would end. (laughs) I don't even know. So apparently this was a great fanfic that shipped Steph and Damien in the future, which I know Josh does not like that shipper. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that particular quote? Since you're an English teacher, what would you say to the student that wrote that? I think that's <laughs> too much. You're over-describing. I'm sure that when Superman smiles at you, if it's if you're being dunked in a tub full of fun- sunshine, your hair gets the same body that everybody else's hair did. Yeah, it's I get it, but it's like it it really is like I'm try, I'm not trying I really I'm not trying to sound like mean and I know Ian didn't write this, but um but it sounds like something where a creative writing teacher just, you know, did the whole lesson on show don't tell and you and you're like uh-huh. kind of in that beginning stage of taking it too seriously like where you're you're over describing so there, there's a way to uh, there's a way to pull back um and no i, I don't ship steph and damien <laughs> Ugh, no oh. i i kind of wonder who said this quote that because that's a good question yeah steph if it were somebody else it'd be a little weird but it yeah. seems like something that stephanie brown I, would say but at the same time like i always like the steph I, and it's been a while since I've read some Stephanie Brown, but I remember like when Dixon introduced her, she was a little rough around the edges. And this doesn't sound like that. Mm. So I always kind of liked that about Steph, where she uh, Steph's not Steph always came off to me. And again, it's been a while. So maybe the character was written in a different way than like the couple of stories that I've read, which are from like the very, very early, her very earliest appearances um, in Mm -hmm. like detective comics um, and the, and the early Batman stuff. Like she always came around off to me who the type of person who wouldn't like this flowery crap would, would feel this way, but would find a less overwrought way of uh, describing it. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. But again, like I said, I'm not trying to be mean here, but yeah, I'm just like, there's a little too much. This is too much. Too much! (laughs) Thanks, Josh, for tuning. Well, you know, fan fiction, I think. I appreciate fan fiction for what it is because I think it gives a lot of people a chance to do creative writing and to Mm -hmm. play with their own own characters. I do agree that sometimes it can be over the top, potentially. Mm -hmm. It certainly is interesting. But for me, I think I could very much see Stephanie Brown of, like, the Batgirl era saying this because yeah. she's very bubbly. Okay. We'll see about it. Yeah. 
Okay, he also continues, he says, what are your thoughts about the coming shakeup in Babs' continuity in June and her appearance in Detective Comics number 975? And so I assume what he's saying about the uh, the shakeup is that Birds of Prey, sorry, Batgirl and the Birds of Prey is ending in June at number 22. Apparently the, the solicit says, who is Oracle revisited? Batgirl and Black Canary must find Huntress and save her from Calculator and Blackbird's nefarious plan. But everything comes full circle and the answer to Calculator's question, who is Oracle, is at last revealed. The Birds of Prey have always been a tight-knit team, but here, in what could be their final hours, they truly become a family. And it's the final issue. Unfortunately, I don't know if it's because of depleting sales mm. that it's ending, or maybe uh, Julia and Shauna Benson just were, were ready to go, but... I hope I, you know, Batgirl is still going to be used. Yeah. I wonder to what extent or how she's going to be used. We know, I, at least I know. I think you, from from your smattering of readings that you've been doing when you come on the show, know that Hope Larson isn't necessarily in continuity with other things. So I don't know how this is going to impact that book. But you know, if Batgirl decided to be Oracle full time, I think that would be pretty interesting. But it is sad. I, I think that the universe demands a Birds of Prey team, and mm-hmm. so even if they end this and then restart it, like in a Marvel way, with just Birds of Prey and then have new members on the team, I think that would be wonderful. And I'm a little confused because when I interviewed the Bensons in uh, July at San Diego Comic Con, there was some uh, murmurings about. Cassandra being kind of brought on. And so I'm wondering if is this a feint and something else is going to happen or they just unfortunately are unable to do this anymore. Yeah, I don't know. And it's a bummer because I like the Benson sisters writing. Yes. Yep. More than I like Hope Larson's and they're just more consistent. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm curious. I am curious as to see what happens with, um, with this. Especially since I'm, I'm shaking up my own pull list and might have an opening for something that they do in the future because I'm probably going to drop, I'm going to drop Wonder Woman with issue fifty. Um, oh, have you been disgruntled with it? No, I just I uh, last month I was filing things and I realized that I haven't read Wonder Woman in like two or three months oh. and they were piling up. Oh wow. And I'm I'm close <laughs> enough to issue yeah I'm like I'm, I'm close enough to issue fifty where I'm like well let me take it out to issue fifty and then I'll drop the book because I I'll read them and I'm like you know but like whereas Superman when I pick up those issues I'm reading them every week so or every you know time I okay. get them so so that was it it was nothing it was nothing disgruntled it was just kind of I think I was just the book was just losing me a little bit in this sort of way as like gotcha. you know kind of you kind of shrug and you know with money. These are these are not dollar books anymore, so you have to be very discerning in what you want to do. Yep. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and in regards to her appearance in Detective Comics number nine seventy five, which I don't know if this is a hint, like maybe because there's a shakeup now in, in that team, mm. that maybe she'll join. Who knows? But I, I recently read this. Are you reading Detective? No. Okay, so I read it for today. So I guess I'll just talk. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I read it for today just to see because I, I had not read it yet. And actually, her appearance uh, is very strong. I, I liked she was the one to cut through all the bat guano, as I'll say, and make sense of Batman's true intentions uh, for setting up the team and why potentially, subliminally, 
he wanted Kate there in the first place. Now, this whole thing, I, I think I'm still a little upset. I think it's unnecessarily dramatic right now. You know, Batwoman's on trial, really. And it's ironic that Jason's there because he's killed people. But I am glad that uh, it was addressed why others who were not on the team are on this jury because, I mean, Batgirl shouldn't have been there, Jason or Nightwing, because they had no involvement in this team. But then they're showing up. But Batgirl actually does bring it up. So I thought, okay, well, the reader is right there with you. I also find it interesting that Batgirl is the only one to remove her mask, with the exception of Jason, who does it very dramatically as he's making his speech. And I have to think, and and I wonder if you would agree with me, that Barbara Gordon seems to be one of the few people, if perhaps one of the only, whose identity is not wrapped up in her Batgirl persona. Would you agree with that? I think this version of Barbara Gordon, yeah, like she can, she's very much a a separate life. Whereas, but she was not raised as essentially Batgirl the way that like Dick Grayson was. Right. As where Dick Grayson really does, I mean, at least, (laughs) at least the Dick Grayson that I read way back in the day couldn't escape Robin or Nightwing in the way that like Mm -hmm. it was so much a part of him. It was so important Mm -hmm. that, but like uh, Barbara. Barbara might not want to put Batgirl away, but when she has to, she can. And then she can come back to it and she feels like it's a part of her, but there's sort of a of a very good separation between the two, whereas I think some of the men struggle with um, achieving that separation. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're all sitting around the table. She's the only, you know, the only female there, and she's the one speaking these hard truths. And you know, in the past, I think someone would have slapped her and said, "Shut up, you." But here, you know, they're <laughs> listening, and they're actually well, really in the Silver Age, they probably would have. But you know, they're respecting what she's having to say. Like Batman is is you know listening to her, and I think, gosh, how far that character has come to to receive this respect. So I very much enjoyed it. But there was a weird point that. Tim started his speech and he says, you know, he was the only one who didn't have personal tragedy act as the catalyst for putting on the mask. And I, I was uh, like, say what? Maybe Barbara, that would have been the time to stand up and say me too, but she didn't. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know Tim's origin post new 52 because Tim's origin as Robin involves his mother's death when he was first mm-hmm. introduced I mean, that's not why he became Robin, you know, it just happened to be part of like his road to becoming Robin. And then his dad was in the wheelchair and, you know, that that was a whole huge part of his character. And I remember in it was either it was either the detective comics storyline from 618 to 621 or the Batman storyline from 455 to 457 because it was the same as Alan Grant and Norm Braveville, the same team where he does literally wonder if having your parents die or facing off against some sort of tragedy is like required to be Robin. So it's some, that's an odd thing for him to say. But then again, I don't know if his origin has been rewritten since 1990. Yeah. Well, in new 52, he did have a new origin and his parents were in Whitsack. I can't remember the details of it. I remember there was a huge argument and I was yelling at Josh Bertoni about it and I tried to defend it. But okay. that's all I remember of that particular thing. Was it the, uh, what's his name? The something something man? Was that the, the Obey man? Yeah, the obey, yes. the obey man, the voodoo guy. Yeah, he killed his mother and paralyzed his ah. father because, like, 
they were performing. They had he had kidnapped them for um, for to try to get ransom money from their company. Mm, okay, you know how I learned about that history? Mm. Taking flight. Mm. <laughs> I just wanted to say that I appreciate the knowledge you have bestowed upon me. All right. Finally, we have one email, and it's from Ange, and uh, this guy is obsessed with Dana Sterling. And Dana Sterling taking showers. And Tom and I, for once, are on the same page and battle this guy everywhere he goes. But seriously, my Twitter has all these, you know, GIFs or uh, JPEGs of Dana in a shower. And that was one of the most frustrating things for me, watching that Robotech series. At least it's not mid-May. I don't know what to say about it. I'm so tired of seeing (laughs) Dana Sterling's Oh, my God. Okay, so this is in regards to the Shipper episode that I had with Don on Spider-Man. He says, okay, I know I am no expert on Spider-Man, but when a so-called Spider-Man expert puts Gwen at number four on the Loves of Spider-Man list below Betty Brand, exclamation, 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 I have to question the veracity of their expertise. Really? So he's calling out Don because I didn't do that. There was also a whiff of shagness to the explanation. And here he goes on. Mary Jane, he had a lot of sex with her. She's interesting. The Black Cat, he had a lot of sex with her. Then Betty Brandt, he slept with her that one time. And then Gwen, she was boring. Hmm. Anyways, the whole above is a joke. I don't agree with the list, but it is clear you two have read or, or read, whoa, you two have read or seen a lot more Spidey than me. And I know that the critical part of my Spider-Man fandom was reading Marvel Tales as a very young kid, reprinted ASM issues around the death of Captain Stacy through Gwen's death and beyond. So much of my earliest memories are Peter mourning, sorry, mooning over Gwen, though the other could be true as well, talking about her in ethereal, poetic verse, hearing her voice on the wind, and mourning her. As a very young kid, that was what love should be. Gwen will always be number one for me, but she deserves better than number four. I agree with you there. Tom, I, I don't know if I've ever talked to you about Spider-Man. Do you have any opinions on his love? <sighs> I don't, you know, I, my, I think I've read less Spider-Man than, than but I, I like um, Spider-Man, but I think mm-hmm. I've seen more cartoons with Spider-Man than I've read comics because I've read, let me see, I, the trades I have, I have the, I have the Marvel Essential with the Den of Gwen State, the Den of Gwen Stacy, the Death of Gwen <laughs> Stacy, the Den, oh, yeah, man. with the Death of Gwen Stacy in it because it was five bucks in a bin and I was like, oh, I've never read the this issue let me pick up this essential and i certainly enjoy that uh storyline i have let me see what else do i have i have a couple of the early parts of the straczynski run okay uh a little bit here and there of ultimate spider-man which i actually really did enjoy ultimate spider-man i have Mm -hmm. craven's last hunt which i read as it came out 30 years ago and i covered that on my origin story miniseries um that was really my first spider-man storyline ever and then I have the Alien Costume Saga in trade. So I that's about Ooh. as much Spider-Man as I've read aside from the occasional issue. And I have a ton of issues from the last 10 years that I got when somebody gave me a whole collection worth of stuff. Mm, okay. So I, I really like – I am really, really like – not very knowledgeable beyond just kind of general knowledge on Spidey. And I, even though I really do enjoy the character when I, when I do read him – I will agree with him that I, if just from a very almost taking kind of the layman's perspective on Spider Man, that I would definitely put Gwen higher on that list. Okay. I always figured she was probably number two, right? 
if I, if you if you have Mary Jane at number think. one, yeah, yep. So people just yeah, I don't know. <laughs> to use an analogy that's going to tick you off. Oh, he, oh no! So so Mary Jane's Corey and Gwen's Barbara. Oh my gosh! No, why would you even? What in what realistic world does that even make sense? As an analogy? I don't know. I dropped my mic, but I don't want to damage it. <laughs> How how do you even connect Mary Jane to Corey? She's a redhead. She's a hot redhead that oh was a model. <laughs> Barbara and Gordon she's dating she's dating too. a guy who's just kind of like Barbara Gordon was never a supermodel. Oh my gosh, that's <sighs> sick. I don't like it. You need to go away. When I come back, I'll be alone. I'm going to be alone. Tom's off the call now. And alone, I'm going to review Batgirl and the Birds of Prey number 19 and Batgirl number 20, a.k.a. Batgirl 72. But first, Zias' Radio Hour featuring Blizzard of 77 by Nada Surf. Just slumps on the snow And then later Tripping in 7-Eleven The shells were stretching out of control On a plane ride The more it shakes The more I have to let go Now the signal's Still getting all mixed up We're always doing damage control But in the middle of the night I worry it's blurry even without light In the middle of the night I worry it's blurry even without light I know I have got a negative edge That's why I sharpen all the others a lot It's like flowers, oh lady Red beetles with dots But in the middle of the night I worry It's blurry even without light In the middle of the night I worry It's blurry even without light I miss you more than I knew you more than I knew I miss you more than I knew I had some comments about DC 1 million but other than oh. it was just basically my comment my comment was um, I had scribbled it down on a post-it this makes me want to buy the omnibus Oh, because I was like, did I read this? I know I own this and I realized like I only read like the series and a few of the tie ins. So yeah. I kind of liked it, but didn't like it because I didn't get the whole story. So I think that was yeah. my only comment. And then Mike was kind of right about the uh, ragtag group of Titans thing. So that they weren't really that I that was a misnomer on my part. No, no, no. it's it's listed in um like comic database or like one of those sites as the titans mm-hmm. but like mike was right it's between the two series 
there was an Arsenal miniseries that was um, Devin Grayson wrote it and Rick Mays did the art and Vandal Savage is the main villain in that and it's revealed that like Arsenal is like one of his many descendants mm. so when Mike was explaining that whole like he keeps track on his descendants to harvest them in a sense Ooh. that's part of the that's part of the uh the miniseries so there's nothing you have to put back into the episode i was just i found my post and i was like oh crap i forgot to mention this but i think so. that's also you sent me a couple uh pictures of that i remember and isn't that yeah, when it's yeah. revealed that like the, why vandal savage is so young is that there's a clone running around yeah yeah okay so or something something to that extent yeah because yeah. that that was certainly a question in one million because oracle brings up you know that uh, Vandal Savage looks so young, so I guess it's yeah. over answered. Answered over there. And I also, I also had a recommended for the book uh, Chase, which I'm going to loan you. So, and uh, I thought Shaz's real name was Hortense. Hortense. Hortense, and not Horatio. But, oh man, uh, I think isn't there a famous Hortense in literature? I'm sure there is. <laughs> <laughs> we just haven't gotten there. I yet. was just coming up with, I'm coming up with a complicated sounding H name. Yeah. Well. I'll just call him Shagalicious. Okay, so we are back. I decided to forgive Tom. He decided to uh, to to give me lots of gifts and apologize and said that of course Batgirl and Barbara Gordon's number one on Dick's list. So here we go. Batgirl and the <laughs> Batgirl and the Birds of Prey number nineteen, Full Circle Part One, Web of Lies. Writers Julian Shauna Benson, artist Rohe Antonio, and colorist Marcel Maiolo. Oracle has hacked calculator servers and has been keeping track of interactions and sales that he has with criminals, all the while relaying the information to Black Canary and Huntress without telling them the true source of the information. Drama ahead. After catfishing for some actual fishmen, Babs goes over to her father's house to help him set up his home computer, which I thought was nice. Babs contemplates revealing her secret identity at one point to him, but continues to keep Jim safe by not revealing it. Later, Babs visits Poison Ivy at TerraCare and is happy that she was able to reform one villain, wondering if Poison Ivy is an anomaly or it could happen to others. Back at the clock tower, Babs decides to step away from the computer and fight with the birds as Batgirl, taking down several other criminals associated with Calculator. As the birds are about to take on the Falcones, or the Falcones, depending on how you pronounce it, they are suddenly attacked by a flaming-eyed robot named Burnrate, who demands to know who Oracle is. Clearly outgunned, Canary throws a smoke bomb and the birds escape. They come to the conclusion that burn rate must have been created by Calculator, and Batgirl comes clean with how she's been receiving her information. Helena and Canary connect that burn rate was coming after them because they knew Oracle's ID, and Batgirl realizes that Gus is in danger. I should say, I should have added that Helena and, well, Huntress and Canary are upset that Oracle has been getting her information illegally, as they say. So, we'll talk about that. Speaking of Gus, he unwittingly opens the door, which you'd think people would learn by now. But he does think <laughs> that he hears Batgirl's voice, but it's actually burn rate. He's beaten within a centimeter of his life, never revealing Oracle's identity. And when the birds actually arrive, they put the beat on burn rate. But Batgirl is really fighting her alone before she's dragged off. And then Canary blasts the robot with more power than even Huntress has seen before. Gus gives Batgirl a key, I believe, and he dies. 
saying that working with the birds of prey was the best time in his life. The birds quickly go through stages of grief before Helena and Dinah stalk off, angry at Batgirl, of course. Babs goes to the clock tower and destroys the hard drive with the information on it about calculator, thinking that, of course, of course she's thinking this, that Gus's death was her fault. Elsewhere, Calculator has Bernard keep an eye on the parole board judge, and Helena speaks to her mother in Blackgate Prison, so you assume that there's a connection there, but I could be assuming incorrectly. Next is Committed. Before we get into our uh, commentary and our review, again, we're going to do our favorite art of, of, of this particular issue, Tom. Did you have any particular panel or page that really caught your eye in this issue? Pages six and seven, I really, I really like the moments with with her. At, no, it was like five, page five with uh, with Jim. Yep, I like those moments. Um, I thought it was nicely illustrated. Page seven, which shows her showing up back in the clock tower, and pouring a, a drink, and then um, the the bot. I really like the bottom panel of her putting on the Batgirl mask with the clock behind her. I just like how, I like how that's framed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's it's a really really nicely framed shot mm-hmm. uh, that says in so many without many words kind of shows the duality of Batgirl and Oracle. Cuz there there are sometimes where I think like she's drawn a little too young. Sure. Yep. Um and sometimes the 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 size of the eye holes on her mask bother me mm. that they're like very they're, large. they're huge they are, yeah. yeah they're really really large mm-hmm. and and i mean i that's just it's a little thing and it's really not like anything that takes me out of the story but sometimes i'm like well there's like really they're like barry's on the flash tv show you know which it's like how do you not know that's barry but um again, wait, wait a second everybody knows that he's that yeah. he's the flash he just tells them but uh and then uh her smashing the hard drive, I thought, was a really good sequence because I really like the bottom of that pa- of that page, or actually like how the page is laid out with that. It, which essentially it's a splash of her with the clock tower behind her, with the sledgehammer, the broken hard drive, and her just sitting in the corner. You don't see her face, and she's holding the key. And then there's inset panels of her taking the hard drive out, approaching it, smashing it, screaming, smashing it yeah. again. And I think that that's a really well laid out. Mm-hmm laid out page mm-hmm. for me i really liked uh in between your five and seven i liked page six uh, especially just that top panel of barbara gordon bringing food to ivy at terror care i think it's just well <laughs> it's well positioned i think and just like the emotion behind the scene and and such a i i think a lot of that uh, you know i might pick because there's emotion behind them but just you know a nice scene of you know a hero visiting a you know quote-unquote villain and the meaning behind all that. And I also really liked page 18, uh, which is another emotionally filled one, which is with the birds that are around Gus's dead body. And just, yeah, it, it's hard to, you know, I, I'm not the biggest fan of Gus, but uh, I think you, you, mm-hmm. you, if you care about the characters that care about another character, you're obviously going to be impacted. So it was very much a sad scene, and you feel that uh, that grief there as they're, they're sitting around them. So I liked those two things. Yeah. The only criticism I have of that is that is that Huntress looks too young mm. in that okay. panel. Like, cause I thought thought Huntress is supposed to be in like an adult yeah, woman, right? I would say. Yeah, I mean, she was matron. She kind of looks like a teenager yeah. in that panel. Yeah, um, she looks. But otherwise, I mean, the emotion is expressed really mm-hmm. well. 
and I, I agree with you. I really like the layout of that panel as well with the insets and the, the big splash. I like how well the Benson sisters are economical with their words and don't overdo it, but they also don't completely underdo it. This doesn't take five minutes to no. read, you know, whereas some other books that you and I have read, you know, take a, a really, really quick reads. Right. Um, Brian Woods like that sometimes. Yeah. So yeah. you can kind of, or you don't burn through this book quickly. You know, it's not overdone no, too. No. Yeah. And a lot of it is her narration too, which is it. So we get mm-hmm. a lot of, of, uh, Barbara Gordon's feelings and thoughts and everything. So I've got some uh, discussion questions with this. First one is, <laughs> well, let me see. What should I tackle first? Do you think Barbara Gordon is really to blame for Gus's death? I can see why she blames herself. Yes. I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I mean, if he was doing something and the end, there's a, there's a risk that comes with the job, you know? So he was putting himself in that danger. So maybe the birds themselves share responsibility, but I don't think it's all on Barbara. Yeah, Yeah, I agree with you there. I think, uh, well, you know, I hate to to hate on Batman, which maybe we have done this episode, but, you know, Batman has taken minors, and it's not like he's been joyful about taking minors out into the field. He, there's been some reticence there. But Gus is not a minor. So he was able to make his own decisions about being involved. And also the way he became involved was pretty shady. But Helena and Dinah were certainly the two members who approached him with the most caution. And Barbara was allowing him to be on the team at least to watch him. So, you know, she might have been that gateway. So I can I absolutely see where she she feels guilty, but I don't know that it it really is her fault. However, if we're getting which goes into my next question about this calculator business, I guess they're seeing it her as her fault because she was doing some illegal business uh looking into calculator stuff. So, of course, fueling his hate and he's going to try to take her down no matter what cost and of course going for Gus. So, that brings me to this yeah. question because I almost wondered if this was overly dramatic or adding unnecessary drama. Given what the birds do every night, not to mention Helena once worked for Spiral as matron, do you think it makes sense that they're so upset that Barbara was hacking calculator servers? Wasn't this what Oracle always did in the universe? Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. I actually was sitting there. I'm looking at this. I'm like, how many times are they going to get mad at her for yeah. something? Because it seems like kind of a motif in in this and in the previous series mm-hmm. as well. And in, in a couple of the issues, I when um, Dwayne Straczynski, yeah, and and whoever Christy wrote Marks. it after, yes, Christy Marks. That's what I was like. The gem yes, creator. Yeah. I was like Tim and the holograms. Uh, yeah. So it just seems like it's kind of a motif of like at some point everybody gets mad at Barbara because Barbara did something. And you're right. Like they're vigilantes. They 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 work outside mm-hmm. the law. And granted, they're not always. You know, they'll try to do things legally, but they skirt with with the uh, obtaining information. They skirt the law all the time, right? Yeah. So why are they um, – yeah, why are they so mad? It's not – you know, unless she like – I guess if like if she had made a deal or something, you know, uh, or, you know, had she kind of the like 
that sort of deal with the devil. Like she made a deal with the mafia and the mafia provided her with information, but now she, they're going to, she's going to owe them a favor. Like that's where I could see them like getting really mad at her, you know, because there's like, because like, you know, she, she, she stepped over a line that, that was like kind of obvious for them. But if she was just simply kind of running in areas and, and doing things that were a little shady and underhanded to get information, but there's no sort of, you know, I, I don't, I mean that that Oracle would have done anyway, yeah. you know, back back in the day. I don't see the uh I don't see the problem. Yeah, I and unfortunately this was my biggest issue with with the story because I just feel like we're creating conflict where it would not have existed in the past and I also don't like you call yeah, it's becoming a motif, it's becoming a trope of, you know, having a t- like the team turn on one team member because of something that he or she does. And you know, mm-hmm. they do surveillance, they look at surveillance, that's certainly tapping into some CCTV. That's not on the up and up. Being a vigilante, being associated with other people, um, hanging out with Bat uh, not Batwoman, Catwoman and Ivy and the the previous arc, all those people. So I don't really know know how they can get on her for this and also they're taking down you know people that you know there's probably definitely evidence against them and they're they're cleaning up the street so yeah i'm glad that you're on my side for this yeah it's yeah it was just i mean it's it's not a terrible story by any means but it was just kind of frustrating to see like a yet again we have Knowing this is what issue nineteen, yep, it's ending in twenty-two, and knowing this series is going to end in twenty-two, mm-hmm. maybe this is just set up for the end of the Which series. Which is unfortunate. Are we really going to end with them? You know, mm-hmm. split up, birds of prey, no more, and in, in a all a Spider-Man yeah. dropping a suit in the trash can. Well, <laughs> is is do you think that that Batgirl and the Birds of Prey is kind of becoming her Batman and the Outsiders, oh. like where? Batman and the Outsiders has gone through this cycle of him with the Outsiders and then the Outsiders alone and then eventually like he gets back with the team and then the team goes on its own and like over the last 30 years or so that we've had various Outsiders and Batman and the Outsiders titles like he kind of associates with them and then doesn't I mean is is, is this what this is going to become where like sometimes she's part of the birds and sometimes she's not yeah, oh man well I, it always bothered me that it was Batgirl and the Birds of Prey I never understood why it couldn't just be Birds of Prey but Birds of Prey yeah I want do you think I, I'll ask I'll answer your question with the question which is obnoxious mm. can the Birds of Prey stand on its own without Barbara Gordon. Conceivably, I guess it could, but I wouldn't want to see it without Barbara yeah, Gordon. Because I like, I like the fact she's in there, and I mean, I understand why Batgirl and the Birds of Prey exist as a title because if Batgirl's a popular right, character yeah. and they put Batgirl sure. on the cover of the book, they might sell <laughs> books. But <laughs> yeah, um, you know, well, I mean, honestly, yeah. like that's going to be yeah. the thing, right? So you know, that in continuity, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in in, in business terms no i i you know i think we could have it but then it becomes like mike brought up the teen titans last episode and he brought up that just prior to dc 1 million was the end of the teen Titans series that was done by dan jurgens and it was they were sort of like the replacement titans they were not or well there was another team was really but they were like none of them were like original member Teen Titans, so it's kind of like... And there were other Teen Titans teams that didn't have... Or Titans teams that didn't have, like, Nightwing. And, you know, there was, like, a Roy Harper-led team um, where there were some awful stories in the early to to mid-90s. And it was always kind of like, yeah, they're the Titans, but you kind of miss the people who made the Titans Mm. who it was. So you kind of stuck around to see if, like, 
Nightwing would come back or Cyborg would come back or Starfire or Wonder Girl or, you know, whoever Wonder Girl was on the team. But like, you know, like, are these people are going to come back and like, you know, are we going to get that core group again? And like, you know, it's 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 kind of like that or like when or like when like your favorite band loses oh, like switches lineups sure. for the umpteenth time you're kind of hoping like you know yeah this is this is this is a good iteration of kiss but you know like where's the core main four guy you know like that sort yeah. of thing like you know like you know there were I, i'm not a huge kiss fan um you know and i but i do like the band and but you know i know there are later albums where it's like you know paul stanley and gene simmons and like you know whoever else, you know a couple other people and you know, it's it might be some good stuff, but in the end, like people really want to see, you know, the makeup mm-hmm. and you know, and it's, so I think that's how you, how a non Batgirl Birds of Prey, or maybe like a non Barbara and Dinah mm-hmm. Birds yeah. of Prey, because those are like the core two are, people: yeah. Lennon and McCartney, <laughs> the Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. How did it feel reading The Outsiders without Batman? Sorry, you, I, that's a vague um, question. What I mean is, did it feel like Batman was the only interesting member, and so now you focus on these uninteresting characters? Could you feel that absence, or could they hold that book on their own? Because I don't really have as much of a relationship or history with I them. haven't. I don't think I've read enough of it to really okay. have a really educated okay. opinion on it. Uh, if there are listeners out there who have read, like... The, Batman and the Outsiders, like, and then the Adventures of the Outsiders and Outsiders, and all the way on to whatever. Um, I'm sure that you could have them, but I want to say that it probably didn't feel the same. Like, because some of the Outsiders characters like really interesting to me, and some of them were just kind of like meh. Like, I thought Katana mm-hmm. was a really mm-hmm, cool character, mm-hmm. and I always like Metamorpho. Yeah. Geoforce was all right, and but yeah, like Halo and Looker, and it was kind of like okay, you know. So nothing wrong with. I mean, nothing wrong with Halo and Looker was, but it was, it was so I don't know what the okay. stories, the okay. sorts of like by in the mid eighties or whatever yeah. it was. I guess it'd be like X Men without Cyclops or and Storm as their leader. Maybe I don't know. Maybe that's not a good analogy. Yeah, I think you know as I'm thinking about it, if they were to do that, I would hope that they bring in fresh blood. Uh, it would be nice to see Zinda return since she was recently sort of seen or at least the Blackhawks were seen in Dark Knight's Metal which I don't really like but you know if they did like a mentoring thing and brought on younger members like Cass and Steph and maybe Harper Rose like the tech and she took the void of Oracle I think there could be something pretty solid there but it can't just be Huntress and Dinah if you get rid of Batgirl so or Barbara Gordon so I hope that there's something else but it would be it would just be weird I think at first but I would have an open mind and again I hope that the Bensons are writing it but I'm I'm a little nervous that they're not on any book now. So that that does make me yeah. a little nervous too. I, I I want them to find work at, at yeah. DC because I think they do have a really good handle on these characters. Do you have any other thoughts on uh, this particular issue? Oh, not really. I'm kind of curious as to what is up with um, Huntress and her mother. Yes. Um, yep, yep. You know, that's enough to want to keep reading. You know, I was I was I was saying stuff about the the eye holes in Barbara's costume, which I think are like way too big. But I I do give the artist credit, Rohe Antonio, Ro, Rohe Antonio, for making the costumes look like clothes. Mm. Like especially on that one page that you were talking about with Gus's right. death, page um, eighteen. Like they the clothes look like clothes, and so that that's a. That was uh, that was something you don't often get in um, in a lot of comics, especially like when the focus on female characters 
sometimes tends to be body. So the costumes look like they've been painted on. Like Huntress in that JLA yeah. issue we were talking yeah. about. Whereas this, like, they look like, you know, they're not baggy or anything mm-hmm. like that. But, you know, one of the things that I love about, what I've always loved about Barbara's Burnside costume is it looks like it was, it's tailored clothing as opposed to just kind of like we needed to put a costume mm-hmm. on her, you know. So, yep. that that's something I also liked about the art. Yeah, I look forward to seeing how this continues. I think, you know, the mother, as you mentioned, I understand why she's in there, but I wonder how it connects with the rest of the story and what Calculator's interest is in that. And I guess given what that uh, solicit was that I read, something's going to be happening with Huntress and she's going to be separated from the bird. So we'll see if more wedges are knocked into place between the members. But overall, what would you give this out of 10 birds? Probably an 8. Okay. Yes, I would agree with you. Basically, I think my catchphrase has been for TBU, and then this is just like unnecessary drama, you know, just creating conflict where there doesn't need to be some. It makes me a little upset, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. Okay, well, on to Batgirl, and this will be interesting because the last time Tom was on, he didn't really like Batgirl, and I was with him. It was that flashback episode with Robin, remember? So here we go. Oh, yeah, Batgirl. that's right. <laughs> yes. Uh, so Batgirl number 20, as I call it, Batgirl 72, Cold Snap Part 2, writer Hope Larson, art Sami Basri, and colorist Jessica Colleen. Batgirl is using her phone to track Kadir's building, but she ends up in a bat guano factory, and it's clearly a setup. She realizes that whoever hacked the weather satellites messed with the GPS satellites as well. She uses her eidectic memory to navigate to Kadir's lab, reminiscing about old times with friends along the way. At the lab, she finds a beaten Kadir on the floor, and apparently he's the only one who works there, since no one else is there, who explains <laughs> that Project 760B was taken. It uses radio waves relayed from a transmitter to a wearable receiver to make the wearer seem trustworthy to those around him or her. Batgirl and Kadir briefly disagree about the moral implications of such a device, but Batgirl desires to check out the security feed first. Batgirl listens to the audio and is able to recognize Ethan Cobblepot, a.k.a. Black Sun. Manipulating people seems to be his M.O., but she's not sure why or when he and his father, Penguin, got together. Later, Batgirl goes to Night Float, Penguin's nightclub, which is now doubling as a public shelter. She questions the mayor and tells him her suspicions, but feels silly after understanding that what smells fishy is actually fish in the lounge. Outside, that did actually kind of crack me up. Outside, she has a breakthrough that she was manipulated by the vice while inside. Using her mathematical skills, Batgirl finds the location of the transmitter in an anonymous office building. There she finds campaign posters for Penguin to run for Congress, but is interrupted by a new and improved Black Sun, who has taken months, not years apparently, to build himself back up after Batgirl short-circuited him and really put him down for the count there. Ethan explains that we as people trust what technology tells us, which I certainly agree with. He can use that to assuage any anxiety that people may have about voting for a former criminal. He sets fire to the storm room and locks Batgirl inside with no way out. She uses liquid nitrogen to freeze a section of the wall and then punches her way through the door to find the handle on the other side. Meanwhile, back at the night float 
Penguin announces his candidacy for Congress while using the device. Right before Batgirl drops in from the sun roof, beats up father and son and explains what has been happening. Ethan's mask is taken off to reveal his disfigured face. And while he bemoans the fact that he was beautiful once, he questions what kind of face Batgirl is hiding. In a very contemplative page... Batgirl thinks about the scars that she has and how the last few years in Burnside have left their mark. But she's not a kid anymore, and she doesn't want to be. Next, a family reunion. And when I read that, I thought to myself, oh, no, does that mean James Jr.? (laughs) (laughs) So we'll see. Okay. So we'll start again with our our favorite page before we get into this uh, potentially meaty, meaty issue here. Did you have any favorite panels or pages from this issue? I liked the fight on the stage at the political rally. I thought it was was done pretty dynamically. Um, I liked how... Sammy Vossery drew the penguin because he didn't he didn't completely overdo it, but at the same time he looked like the penguin. The last page was pretty good. I mean, it, it added enough yeah. drama to it. I didn't <laughs> realize it, it took me a minute to realize that ba- Barbara's cowl doesn't go all the way down the back. It does not. Now is that a, like a helmet? Yeah, does, is that true in the Birds of Prey issue or? I'd have to look. It should be. Yes. Okay. All right. So I, um, let me double check, but okay. it should be. I don't know. Overall, I thought the um, the 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 scene with the fish is funny. It is funny. I also yes. agree with that. I was like, you know, that is, that is clever. So I, overall, I thought the art was like really solid throughout the book. Um, it's been one of the higher highlights of this particular Batgirl episode. That the art has been mostly yeah. consistently solid. Yeah, with whether a goose or here we have. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Sammy Bosri. And yes, I just looked that um, her cowl is in fact only halfway down the back on the uh, on Birds of Prey just to double check that. But yeah, I, I feel like the art has been uh, great. I, I think, you know, obviously they're trying to match, I think, what Babs Tar mm-hmm. very much put into play, but trying to make it their own as well. I, I'll be corny and say that I really liked that last page. I, I think just her looking in the mirror and how that was used and her thinking about her time in Birdside, as well as what she's saying, uh, was very powerful. I also like the way the artists do her eidectic memory um, and just seeing sort of ghosted images as she's traveling around time. I think that I, I just enjoy seeing what artists, how they take that superpower that she sort of has. Yeah. So I would say those two things would be my favorite. Well, this might be the first time that you've actually read Batgirl with me that her eidectic memory came into play. I could be wrong, but I, I feel like it I might think be. it might be too. Do you think that it was used well and do you think it was reasonable how she was using it here both with um listening to the because she couldn't see ethan cobblepot but she was listening and recognizing the voice and also her little travel around town and and reminiscing yeah in fact i liked the bit about listening to him and how the memory kind of forms in her head because she can call upon like the photographic aspect of that memory and like she Mm -hmm. can put the face to the name the 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 face to the voice which I think mm-hmm. on some level a lot of us can do. You know, I think I think it's something very natural, like that when you hear when you are very familiar with what somebody looks like and mm-hmm. what they sound like, because I don't around all the more mm-hmm. if it's a musician and you have saw their video performances and stuff, when you listen to them, you know, without video, um, you can picture them in your head, like singing or speaking. So I, think I like how that was done because it was a very natural thing and she just has a heightened sense of memory. So, yeah, I thought I thought that was expressed. I think that's a credit to um credit to the artist 
You know who can't apparently do this? Recognizing a voice? Jim Gordon. Because <laughs> apparently, in talking with Batgirl face-to-face, gaping eye holes, he still hasn't known that's his daughter. <laughs> that bothers me, actually. I really want him to come out. I hope he knows. I really want him to say something. Yeah. Now. Is this, like, the thing where we all, like, assume that he knows that Batman is Bruce Wayne? And he's just keeping so. the secret? Like, like I've always known, and I just kind of kept it a secret. I'm not, you know, I'm not that stupid. Yeah. And I think maybe he knows that that's Barbara. It's just, I, I think you're right. It's like, hopefully one day it'll just, and you almost want it to be done in a way that's just like really just quick. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, you know, like he reveals it and that's it. And then he moves on and it's just kind of like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I, you know, if anything, I, I could do away with the Batman one. And I would at least hope that he would know that his daughter is in fact Barbara Gordon. Um, I don't. I don't think he will ever reveal that he knows Bruce is Batman until after Batman retires. Okay, if he ever retires. Yeah, if he ever retires. I think it's just one of those things that he'll he'll take with him for a long time, and he'll never give up that secret until mm-hmm. he feels the moment is right. Yeah, uh, I agree with you about how her eidetic memory was used here. Uh, I'm very critical of Hope Larson and and how she uses technology in her issues as well as uh, this power that uh, Barbara has and sometimes I think it it doesn't necessarily make sense but I think here it's played very well. It's not over the top so I was very appreciative Mm -hmm. of that. Uh, And it was nice to, to reflect on everything but I felt like there was a theme here because it was very much about Batgirl and Burnside and her history here. Do you what? What do you think, Hope? War- this is a very like required reading question here. But you know, is Hope Larson trying to establish something here? Like she, this is her chat. This is her. Li- I don't even know. Do you have any thoughts about? Did you see this as a running theme? And do you think Hope Larson was trying to put something in there? I don't know. I don't know if she's forced trying to force something because I read that line in the last page. She said, "I was so young when I came to Burnside the last few years," and I'm like, first of all, I had to think back to the fact that yes, it has been a couple of years. Yeah. Yep. Since the Burnside run began, but at the same time, I'm like, I don't know what the timeline is because, like, comic book timelines are so vague mm-hmm. that if you wanted this to be a few years, it could be a few years. But if you wanted this to be a matter of several months, sure. it could be. And so, I have not been keeping up except for your show. So, I don't know if if she is well established that years have gone by since the beginning of the Burnside since she moved to Burnside yeah. or if it's been months. So, and, and she's certainly not drawn in a way to show that she's any older. Mm, no. If she's trying to make the point like, Oh, I've grown so much or I've changed so much or whatever. I was so young back then. Well, she kind of still looks like a kid. <laughs> uh, well, you know, yeah. it's just, I don't know. I like, I, if she's trying to establish something, she might be forcing it. Or she's trying to force subtext into this story about um, a, a, into a penguin storyline. I, I don't, I don't know exactly what she is doing or what her uh, on that last page, like what her intention is. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and gosh, are we entering a new era with uh, you know Barbara Gordon as well? Um, looking at this, mm-hmm. you would almost hope that her reading those Penguin for Con- Congress posters would light some sort of fire in her and then we could see <laughs> this era barbara gordon but now i guess she really would be because isn't what's the age limit what what is your minimum age because i think she was the youngest congresswoman but how old do you have to be to be a member of congress you have to be 25 to oh, be a member of the okay. house of representatives okay 
30 to be a senator mm. and 35 to be president uh president or vice president okay she might be close to 25 i remember talking with uh carolyn coca about this about what her age could be uh and it was certainly up in the air when she first came on the scene with burnside that it seemed like she was younger i'm hoping that you know perhaps more than just age and numbering that it's talking about her life experiences and that she's grown up there and in this you know issue it certainly seems like it but it's been so inconsistent with hope larson's run mm-hmm. like some really weird stuff has happened that you sort of look at barbara gordon like are you a child with the way that you're approaching this or you know acting that i'm not sure how much she's grown but i look for it i kind of wonder what's going to come down the pike with this i think it should be interesting but yeah yeah who knows? Maybe, maybe new era. Maybe a new era. Maybe. I don't know. What side are you on in the Kadir backroll debate in regards to using this device? His side was you could potentially use it in a hostel. A host, host. Wait, what am I thinking? When I am taken captive, I am hostage. Thank you. A hostage <laughs> situation. I had to work through that in my brain. A hostage situation or a terrorist to sort of calm them down. But Barbara Gordon thinks um, that, well, just like it's being used now, it could be used poorly to manipulate people. Do you have any dog in the fight in that debate? I tend to fall more on Batgirl's side okay. um, because I often see technology like this being used for profit. Mm, yeah. And manipulation, and that there's a that there that yes, there's always an upside to things like this, and it's being developed. But then there's I tend to be skeptical of it, especially since a lot of times they're developed by companies whose main motivation in doing things is to make money. Mm-hmm. So how are you going to make money? Well, yeah. you can manipulate people. Like one of the hot issues right now is net neutrality. And, you know, there's been a lot of things going on and it's essentially going away. And the, and the ISPs have been like, oh, well, we're not going to do anything. And I'm like sitting there going, really? <laughs> like, so you deep down, I don't tend to trust corporations who are developing anything because they have a profit motive. And it seems, I mean, it's a trope now, really, that something is created for the good of humanity and then it's turned into some sort of weapon uh, because there's more money in that. And so it's all about, you know, it's not your intention, it's how it's used afterwards. And you lent me Echo, and that was very much by Terry Moore, and that's very much one of the things that happened because you had the scientist who wanted this suit for one purpose and then you had uh the evil guy basically that was using it yeah, for how, military how, gains yeah how can we weaponize yeah. it basically yeah. so it's you yeah it's going to come down to that so yeah i agree i'm on back roll side as well you know it would be it just it would be i mean not with maybe not with a current writer but with with somebody else writing it it would be interesting to see a character like the question mm with that girl yeah. in a storyline like this because just I mean granted my only encounter with the question outside of the Rene Montalia um, 52 issues yep. was him on uh, the <gasps> Justice League yes! cartoon and I love him on the Justice yes, yes, League yes. cartoon and like I would love to see like that character in a story like this mm-hmm. where it's like you can't trust corporations yes. there's a conspiracy and everything and how interaction with Batgirl and Kadir would be I don't know it's I don't think it would ever happen yeah. but I think that would just kind of be a fun Batgirl and a question team up would be kind of a fun thing. Yeah, especially you know, this with, iteration of Batgirl. Yeah, especially yeah. with her own corporation with Gordon Clean Energy. Uh, and then mm-hmm. maybe you could start shipping uh, him and Huntress like in the cartoon. <laughs> That'd be great. 
Well, this was uh, your return back, and like I said before this, uh, we didn't enjoy the other one that you were on. So what did you think of this issue? And I sent you the other one as well to read. So what did you think about this storyline as a whole? This is better than the previous one. I mean, granted, it's a low bar to clear. (laughs) Uh, I like – I've always liked what DC, Alan Grant, Chuck Dixon, Doug Mensch – and and writers who followed them did with the penguin in the post crisis basically making him essentially a mob boss the running for congress and everything it's a little bit of a throwback to batman returns cuz remember he runs oh, for yes. mayor yep, yep. i think he runs for mayor in that movie right it's mayor and so like and, and then the congress thing with batgirl so i, I thought this was a, a much tighter story i'm not huge on the penguin's son character mm. Especially that whole thing. Oh, it was beautiful too. Once, I'm like that's your motivation for being a homicidal maniac. <laughs> like you got scarred. Uh, I have scars. I haven't gone out and killed anybody. Yeah. You know, like I'm not trying to take over the the city. If you could always make the excuse that, like, you know, uh, he, he could have been the Michael Corleone. You know, like he gets he he thinks he, you know, he he first tries to avoid the family business, but by the end he shuts the door on Diane Keaton and he's like fully he's the Godfather. I mean, like you could have gone that she could have gone that route with him instead of like stripped off his mask and oh my god he's got a scar. So that's kind of like the weakest point for me. Mm-hmm. But like the characterization of the Penguin, I thought was really good. I really did enjoy the art. And I thought if she's rethinking things about herself, I get it. But I think you're right. There's been such inconsistency among a lot of stuff that I don't know where it's going or sometimes where it's coming from. Yeah, And I mean this is – I don't know. Maybe fawning over – maybe you're with a guy or you know a girl and you keep breaking up and getting back with them. And then you're saying like you know this time it's for real because I keep thinking that you know we started off this run with she's going over to Asia to re you know reinvent herself yeah, and that you know we've got right? all these stuff yeah and now we're, maybe we're we're reinventing herself again I don't, I don't know so when is it gonna actually hold so it's one of those uh once it actually happens i will believe it but in, in a vacuum uh, this story works really well and you're like oh wow okay yeah i i really like this storyline i agree i'm not very hot on black sun it was. It's interesting that he was beautiful once, of course, because his father is always ugly. But now he's very much like his father, and his external features match his internal features. But he is intriguing, at least with the way he manipulates people through his technology. And and I really actually liked that speech he was talking about that we trust what we read on our phones. And I think it's really true. I mean, even at the very basic level, if the GPS is telling us to make a left, we're going to believe the GPS. And Barbara Gordon believe, and then when it says you make a U-turn at the nearest safe location, they're like ah GPS why? And even Barbara Gordon does that, you know, at the beginning of the issue. So so I did uh, appreciate that and uh, got some politics with Burnside, and I'm wondering if it'll lead to something bigger. And and I hold hopes for maybe that would that would be pretty cool if it leads to something. So I actually I enjoyed this. I'm in a disagreement with the current reviewer of of uh, the Batman universe, but that's okay. So, yeah, I would say that this would be a good issue or two issues to, to potentially pick up if you're looking for some good backroll. So what would you give this, uh, unless you have anything else to say, what would you give this? No, no, I, I I would give it a probably closer to a seven. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I mean, I might be rating too high, maybe like a six and a half. <laughs> uh, I, think the art, I think the art elevates it. 
but like you know the kind of the issues I had like with with, with understanding your issues with continuity sure. definitely downgrades it. And like I said, out of the two villains, I was not a huge fan of the Penguin's kid, but I did like the Penguin. Yes. Yep. And I liked the way things were fought, and I liked there were a, there were a lot of things about this issue that I did genuinely enjoy. So, so, uh, and and considering like the other issues I've read of this series, this run have not been good at all. I think that's why it's I'm grading it so high, like six six and a half seven. Okay, I, that, it's funny to me that you think six and a half and seven is high, <laughs> because I'm about to say it's an eight point five for me. But um, okay. oh, I just think it's a it's a pretty solid B, and I think I do think it's better than the first issue, just because there, were, like I was saying in the last episode, there were just some weird things that I felt were out of place. But this was good. But if we're done with Black Sun. That would be lovely, you know, try to come up with somebody else potentially. So, so well, well, I guess we have James Jr. So now, and you're going to be on that episode with me. So now we get okay. to revisit that relationship. Well, uh, I could be wrong. I'm totally guessing, but it seems like it's going to be James Jr. And that has been really tough to, to read through in the past, especially with Gail Simone. So we, we shall see about that one. Okay. Well, there was a special issue of something that came out. Chris mentioned it in the last one, and so Tom and I, Tom actually gets this. I think, well, really his son gets it, but Tom gets it for himself. His son is acting merely as a beard. And it was the Scooby-Doo team-up, number 34. It was titled uh, Birds of a Feather, writer Sholly Fish, artist Dario Brizula. Brizuela and colorist Frango Riesco. We're not going to spend too much time on it, but just uh, talk about, I think, the fun that we had reading it. And just the tagline from the solicit was, the birds of prey called Daphne, Velma, and Scooby in for a bit of help with a giant bird problem in Gotham. So, Tom, I think you read this regularly, potentially. At least your son does. You probably snag his copy from time to time. What were your thoughts on this little team up here? I always I, I snag this whenever I find the team up as characters that I um, think are fun, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I just think this is a really really fun book. Um, I thought it was funny that they used the Huntress outfit that I hate, <laughs> <Yes>. but because <laughs> yeah. uh, they use that that but uh, but at the same time it's just kind of like a and it and they've done this before. They always do this. They had one with Wonder Woman where it was almost like you know they really put a spotlight on the the girls in the. In the gang, as opposed to you know the guys, and and it's just um, from what I uh, from what I did, and like I said, it's a nice quick read, and it's I just I just really enjoyed it, and um, I, I happened to notice it when we were just kind of back and forth on like what we like and or what's been going on, and I and I got it whenever Brett picked it up, and I I noticed that they were on the cover, and that's what I think I sent you a picture. I was like. Did you know this was out yeah, or whatever? Because yep. I had no idea. Like I, I had probably seen the solicit and previews, and it totally just went by me because I knew it was going to be in the you know it's on the pull list anyway. Uh, but no, it's 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 fun. I mean, DC's doing something very right by this title and some of their other all ages titles in a way that uh, I'm glad they're expanding. That you know they'd recently announced like a young adult line. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to see what they do with that because they've yeah. tried this before and it hasn't worked. Yeah. But if they're doing a young adult line that involves their superheroes somehow and they find a way to maybe distribute it somewhere other than just comic shops, maybe they'll start making the money they really should be off mm-hmm. of these characters. And and this Scooby-Doo team-up book is like really one of those great, fun books that 
it's like a really good cartoon that you can watch with your kids Mm -hmm. because there are cartoons that your kids will watch that make you want to claw your eyes out. And then there are cartoons that you watch with your kids that you're just like, this is fun and, and great. And, uh, and that's how I felt about, that's how I feel about the title in general. Yeah, this was fun. This was just like kind of like a nice little one-off issue that, uh, that kind of falls in line with other issues they've done. They've done ones with the Titans, uh, well, they've done one with Teen Titans Go, and they've done one with Batman and Robin, and uh, they've done some Wonder Woman, and I believe they did, I th- actually for a while, the most valuable issue was the one with Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy. Because of Harley Quinn, it was around the time of the Suicide Squad right. movie. So, but that was that was another one that was uh, that was great. So yeah, so I just just wanted to. I, I'm glad you you decided to just kind of drop this in, which is just so that I could say if you if you can track this one down, read it because it's just fun. Yes, it is. Yeah, and what's nice about this, it sort of reminds me of Gravity Falls in a way because it whilst this might be catered towards younger audiences. As an older or more veteran reader, you can still appreciate it. And there are certain things that actually might mm-hmm. escape younger audiences' notice because it's actually pretty smart with nods to current continuity. They mentioned, uh, yeah. I think it was Helena men- mentions uh, the owl problem in Gotham City, which, of course, you know, the, the Court of the Owls. And you've got um, a, a f- mention to, I don't even know if she's in continuity anymore, but that's okay, Starling, who is in the Dwayne Swierzynski and Christy Marks run of New 52 Birds of Prey. So I thought that, and also having Zinda, of course. So I just really like that they do that. You, you're reading this for fun and then you're like wait a minute i get that little nod they're talking about some stuff that's currently going on so i i really liked that i did have a question and i don't know if you're going to be able to answer this but when zinda is flying away she says that she is late for a hot date with the cool customer if you get my drift and uh whoever whomever is speaking to her could be backroll says affirmative go have fun and i don't know who that would be even though I guess because I just talked to my, about myself know. as a veteran reader, I should. But I don't know who she, whom she was dating. Hot day with a cool customer. I, I, yeah, I don't know. I honestly don't know, know either. Okay. So yeah. So that's for <laughs> you, listeners. Think, like, if you know whom Zinda was dating, I guess in ugh, pre-Flashpoint continuity, uh, let us know because yeah. I'm sort of scratching my head about whom this could be speaking. But yeah. you mentioned uh, Huntress's outfit, and when you sent me the the picture of, did you know this was out? I immediately saw Backrolls, and actually her gray and blue costume. And it depends; uh, I could go for the black or the yellow bat. But actually, I really love the gray and the blue. That's probably my favorite. I I I'm fine with the mm-hmm. black and uh, I guess yellow cape. But this one's actually my favorite. So I was very appreciative that they used this design for her. I've always been a fan of the grand blue costume as well. I think maybe that's because that's the first costume mm. I ever saw of hers because either from if I had picked up a comic with Batgirl in it when I was a kid or the licensed art the licensed artwork in the 80s was the was the um the blue and gray costume. Mm. But I'm also a fan of Batman's blue and gray costume. Ah, okay. From the 70s and 80s, which, um, you know, the Neil Adams and the Marshall Rogers and Don Newton and like those artists were were like it was colored with that blue. And then, of course, you know, the the licensed artwork Mm -hmm. 
Um, I've always been a fan of that costume, even though it's not like, you know, gothic loner, dark knight. <laughs> yeah. No parents. Oh, no. Continued Poor darkness, guy. you know, et cetera. Um, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I do enjoy the, the – so, so, and I like that, that variation on, on Barbara as well. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely two thumbs up from both of us and absolutely go pick that up. Yeah. Went out over to Chris for his Batman Adventures review. Ah, that's like finding you're wearing green on St. Patrick's Day when you forgot it was March 17th and finding some extra clover in your pocket so you can buy that one comic you thought you'd have to leave back on the shelf. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Bat fans. Welcome once again to the Batman Adventures review segment. Thank you very much for downloading, and as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. My name is Chris, and I am very glad to be with you. For those of you following along, I'm reviewing the Batman Adventures title. In previous segments, I've already covered the first three Barbara Gordon Batgirl appearances in this title, in issue numbers 12, 18, and 26, and then have gone back to review these chronologically from the beginning, with issue number one, and with this podcast, I am now up to issue number three. Batman Adventures number three was cover dated December 1992, and had a cover price of $1.25. Our story is entitled, Joker's Late Night Lunacy! It was written by Kelly Puckett, pencils by Ty Templeton, who also did the cover artwork, inks by Rich Burchett, and colors by Rick Taylor. The Batman was created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger. This story has been reprinted in Batman The Collected Adventures Volume 1, which was released in 1993, and The Batman Adventures Volume 1, which was released in 2015. This does appear to be available on Comixology. Act 1. A Star is Born. Commissioner Gordon returns to his apartment, turns on the light, and finds he has unwanted company. The Joker is sitting in his chair, pointing a gun at him, and he is flanked by four henchmen. As Gordon reaches for his gun, the Joker shoots him with a tranquilizer dart into the waiting arms of a henchman, and he is dragged off. Smash cut to Batman, taking down a killer on a rooftop. And then our hero notices a crowd looking through a window of a video store. <laughs> Remember those? Through the video store window, we see the Joker is on every monitor. The Joker announces the debut of Joker TV, which will air on midnight on every channel, with a signal impossible to trace, thanks to the technology that the Penguin and the Catwoman stole in the previous two issues. We see his guest, a gagged Commissioner Gordon, tied to a chair, and the Joker hits his arms, off-panel, with a Louisville Slugger baseball bat, proclaiming that there is no law and order in Gotham City only chaos. And before signing off, the Joker states he will return tomorrow night with another special guest. Act 2. I want my JTV. Harvey Bullock and Harvey Dent have convened on the GCPDHQ rooftop, and the bat signal has been lit. Bullock is assuring Dent that the GCPD can find Gordon, but Dent wants to hear what Batman will say. Batman arrives and tells the men that Dent should be used as bait, as he is the next logical target but any police presence could ruin a trap. Dent agrees and tells Bullock to back off and that he doesn't want any police protection. Bullock reluctantly leaves and Batman lays out his plan to Harvey. Later, when the coast is clear outside of Harvey Dent's apartment building, one of the Joker's henchmen poses as a delivery man and Harvey lets him in. Harvey Dent, apparently only dressed in a robe, opens the door for the delivery man, who storms in the apartment along with the Joker and three more henchmen. The Joker shoots Harvey with a tranquilizer dart, and his men carry the unconscious victim down the apartment building stairs. The Joker surmises that Harvey's abduction was way too easy, and as if on cue, Batman appears and starts to take out the henchmen, one by one from behind. 
Batman starts to make short work of the Joker's men, but suddenly the Joker shoots Batman with not one, not two, but three tranquilizer darts. <laughs> Nighty night, Batsy! The next broadcast of JTV starts, and it's watched by Gotham's populace, including Alfred in the Batcave, patrons in a bar, Harvey Bullock and Rene Montoya at GCPD HQ, and Mayor Hamilton Hill at his home. The Joker wastes no time revealing his guests. Commissioner Gordon, still bound and gagged, a seemingly still unconscious Harvey Dent, who is bound and gagged as well, and a special, unexpected guest, Batman, who appears to be out cold, manacled and chained to a board, and propped upright, who the Joker will proceed to unmask. Act 3, Flash in the Pan. The Joker unmasks Batman, and reveals him to be, drumroll please, Harvey Dent! What the wah? As everyone reacts in shock, the real Batman, disguised as Harvey Dent, still wearing a robe, snaps the ropes and manages to get loose and starts to punch the Joker and his henchmen. Batman starts to free Commissioner Gordon and the Joker starts to escape. Batman changes into his costume and goes to look for the Joker. During the chase, Batman finds himself topside aboard a large ship that is presumably on Gotham Bay. Batman looks and spies the Joker getting away in a small speedboat. Batman, finding a harpoon gun, shoots at the Joker's boat. Batman pulls himself along the water into the Joker's boat as the grinning villain is singing I've Been Working on the Railroad. The Joker feels a tap on his right shoulder, and as he turns, he's met by a punch to the face by Batman. A fight ensues, but the Joker manages to leap overboard before the speedboat crashes into a patch of rocks, resulting in an explosion. Batman resurfaces and says, Someday, someday soon, I'll have the last laugh, Joker. As he hears laughter in the background. The end. A few comments. As you heard in my story summary, this issue was broken up into three acts, as were the prior two issues. So, listeners, I've been doing you a slight disservice with some of the description and the recaps in the past two segments. Now, I don't think I've shortchanged you with the summaries, or gist, if you will, of the story itself, but in the past two segments, I didn't label anything to a specific, quote, act, unquote, in the issues that were previously covered. This method of storytelling will continue at least for the next dozen or so issues during the title's run. Now, I bring it up because I think it's unique. As this comic is a comic book based on a TV show, a reader can almost imagine commercial breaks being inserted between the acts, as if this could have easily been an episode of the TV series that they were reading in comic book form. Mayor Hamilton Hill appears in the story, but his name is not given. This would be his second appearance in this title. Renee Montoya appears in this issue. This is her first appearance in this title, but she's not identified, nor is she given anything to say. Act 2 of the story was titled, I Want My JTV. Some of you readers and listeners that are old enough may remember an MTV ad campaign. I want to say around 1983, possibly, give or take a year, where if you lived in a spot where you didn't have access to MTV, as it wasn't from your cable TV provider, you were directed to call in your cable provider and say, I want my MTV, and demand your MTV. I think some of the popular music acts of the time were involved in these TV spots. Uh, there was uh, Pete Townsend from The Who, David Bowie, uh, Pat Benatar, and The Police. Yeah, some people may remember a time when MTV wasn't nationwide and not a part of basic cable TV channels. Much more not available in certain parts of the country, or even in the city where you lived, if you lived in a large metropolitan area. 
So depending on the time, certain parts of the U.S. had access to MTV before those did, as did certain areas of larger cities. Strange times, looking back. I know some families where the head of the household didn't want to shell out any money for cable TV, so my one buddy had to watch NBC's Friday night videos for any music video content back then. Okay, back to the story. Uh, Ty Templeton is a masterful artist, and I don't think his name is brought up in any conversations about great Joker artists. It should. When this issue drops, I'll try to tweet out some of my favorite panels of the story. As you would expect for a kid-friendly comic of this type, the violence Joker uses with the baseball bat is mercifully not shown. Instead, we see reaction shots, which is very effective storytelling. My initial score on this issue was going to be 9 out of 10 bats, but I thought... Joker's actions, in my opinion, some of the time, most of the time, are for some means. To get something. Be it something tangible or for revenge, he has a twisted motive. We don't quite have that here. We have, for sure, as he states, he is doing this for pure chaos. Fair enough, we get the insanity here. I wanted a little more here... And even a comment would have sufficed, stating that he took over broadcast television because he couldn't find anything on at midnight, or something. And I can overlook some quibbles. We never learn exactly what the Penguin and the Catwoman stole, other than it was tech for the Joker to use for his JTV. Batman disguising himself as Harvey was a clever ruse, but Harvey is drawn in such a way here that it's a bit of a stretch that the Batman has the same body type. And he's bare-legged, and he's only wearing a robe when he's kidnapped. Especially with Harvey having a much more narrower face and long nose. Uh, Batman snapping the ropes while he's breaking loose was a bit Superman-esque. And where, oh where, did he hide his Batman costume when he was captured disguised as Harvey Dent? In his robe? We're forced to give some of these things a pass, but I was left wondering... So, very good story, but after some thought, I'm going to split the difference and give Batman Adventures number 3 8.75 bats out of 10. Now for my segment within a segment, Nightwatch, where I will take a quick peek at the Nightwing title, this time with issue number 39, which is the current issue at the time of this recording. I will say there is no shipper alert. In one scene, via flashback, there is one panel where Starfire says to Dick, over the phone, in part, we're not together anymore. For the entire issue, Nightwing is chained to a chair in a dwelling that is rapidly flooding, and with the villain, the Judge. I don't think there is any chance of Stockholm Syndrome here. So, to conclude, Starfire tells Nightwing we're not together anymore, and, save for the flashbacks, Nightwing is chained to a chair for the entire issue. No shipper alert in Nightwing number 39. This concludes this segment of Nightwatch. I have no Batman-related media comments this month. I do want to give a nice shout-out to Laurel on Twitter at Mountainflower1 for her message of supportive feedback related to the Batman Adventures review segment feature on this podcast. Laurel, I was very flattered by your kind words of support and for just taking the time to write. I was very, very, very appreciative of that. Thank you so much, Laurel. Likewise to Jerry Green, who wrote in some nice words of support for the Batman Adventures review segment on Stella's show. Speaking of Jerry, you can find Jerry's written reviews on the Batman Universe website. Speaking of the Batman Universe website, please consider lending your support to the website that provides excellent content of Batman-related news, reviews, editorials, and other fine, fine podcasts. You can support the Batman Universe via Patreon by following a link on the Batman Universe homepage or by making a one-time donation of any amount you choose on a separate link on the homepage website. Thank you very much for your support. 
Shout out to Stella. Along with this show, check out her on the Batman Universe Comics Podcast and the Required Reading Podcast. Shout out to my friends of the Sutherlands. Be sure to check out the podcast Warlord World, Strucker Talk, Xenozoic Xenophiles, Sensational Sleuths, and their new one called Fantastic Fantasies. <laughs> Shout out to the aforementioned Jerry Green, where you can find his written reviews of Batgirl Birds of Prey, and Harley and Ivy meet Betty and Veronica on the TBU website, and the Bat Books for Beginners podcast, where you can also find me. On the Bat Books for Beginners podcast, we'll review trade paperbacks featuring Batman and related characters. Please give it a try if you're not doing so already. Listeners, if you wish to contact me directly by email, you can reach me at bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. You can also find and follow me on Twitter. You can also leave me a message there. My handle is at btonbatbooks. Thank you very much for your support. What member of the Bat Clan will make their first appearance in the Batman Adventures title in the next issue? What villain of Batman's Rogues Gallery will pose a threat so large that it will have to be covered over the next two issues? What impairment will spread in Gotham City, and who will it affect? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these scary, scattered, scalping, scheming, scapegoating, skeptical scandals will be scavenged, scanned, and scaramouched next time. Same Stella feed, same Stella sight. Thanks, Chris. Well, we are winding down, and I'm going to have to have Tom bite his nails a little bit more until we get to his favorite segment as I do my quick anime watch list. So there are two, of course, you know, I've got my show and my movie, and they're actually connected this time, which is very interesting. The show is only 12 episodes long. It's called Tamako Market. Inside the... Usagiyama Shopping District lies an eccentric but close-knit community of business owners. Tamako Kitashirakawa, a clumsy though adorable teenage girl, belongs to a family of mochi bakers, mochi is a type of rice cake, who owns a quaint shop called Tamaya. One day, Tamako stumbles upon a talking bird <laughs> that presents himself as royalty from a distant land. Dara Mochimaza, as he calls himself, states that he's seeking a bride for his country's prince. Intent on his mission, Dara follows Tamako home and develops an addiction to Mochi becoming painfully overweight and subsequently unable to fly back to his homeland. Thus, he takes up residence with Tamako's family and becomes the community's beloved mascot. Meanwhile, Tamako's friend Mochizo Uji continues to hide his true feelings for Tamako. Their fathers are fierce Mochi rivals, and they're actually across from the street from each other. But will it be enough to drive a wedge between Tamako and Mochizo? And just what will happen to Dara's task of finding his prince's destined bride? This, I watch this Japanese with English subtitles. I don't know that it actually has English dub. I would say that this is seasoned anime viewer approved just because with the bird, it makes it a little wacky. But Tamako, is, uh, she absolutely is adorable, and she loves Mochi so much and helping her family and everything. And she even has, like, little uh, – they're not scrunchies, but holding her pigtails are, like – they look like Mochi balls. So it's actually very cute. Uh, so if you can get past the fat talking bird, I think you'd be okay. But I'll just say for, for being safe seasoned anime viewer and then there was actually a movie based off of it kind of or connected to it and it was about an hour and a half long and it was called Tamako Love Story as she edges toward the end of her high school life the energetic but generally clueless third year Tamako Kita Shirakawa has only one major concern pulling off a stunning baton performance at the Usagiyama Marching Festival but all too soon she's confronted by the reality that all her friends have big plans for their futures she on the other hand just operates with the moderate goal 
of continuing to work at her family's restaurant. Under the same brilliant sky, Mochizo Uji intends to study at a university in Tokyo, leaving behind his family, friends, and most importantly, his first and only love, Tamako. Unfortunately, the shy admirer cannot bring himself to declare his love, and Tamako is yet unaware that she is a source of such anguish. With time quickly running out, Mochizo must confess his feelings to Tamako soon, or his dream of romance will never be fulfilled. I would say that this is new anime viewer approved. There's a beginning section that you have the fat bird uh, talking in his little country. But other than that, I think you could potentially hop on and be okay. You might miss some details that were in the actual little series, but this is cute all on its own. And if you're looking for a nice little uh, cute romance, uh, then please uh, watch it. So there you go. Those are my two anime recommendations. Now, here we go. This is what Tom, this is the only reason he comes on this show. <laughs> uh, if he has open, we talk. So we never talk about books. I know. He openly tells me that this is his favorite segment. So, Tom, what do you have for us? What are you wanting to recommend to listeners? Oh, I'm looking at my, um, <laughs> so last year you and I had this running contest oh, um, to see who could read the most. Yes. And I was like. And um, we both read like an enormous number yeah, of but books you last say year. Who won? Oh yeah, I did. Yes, by and let me just say that you were insane in the last two days because we were close, and then all of a sudden you were fifteen ahead of me, and I thought to myself, "What in the world?" Well, I, there's a four-word explanation for it. <laughs> Jeff Johns Green Lantern. Oh, okay. <laughs> Those things you can read a Jeff Johns Green Lantern trade like quit not not like in ten minutes, sure. but it's like you know I read from because um, I had checked Brightest Day out of the library because I'd never read it. And I was like, well, and they had like they had like all the Brightest Day trades on the shelf. I was like, well, well, it's not going to cost me any money, so let me go ahead and read it. So I went. I was like, well, I never really read all of Blackest Night. And I have it, so I went and read Black. So I, I ended up starting at Rebirth and going all the way to Brightest Day. Wow! <laughs> I think I read like Final Crisis and Infinite Crisis in there as well. Um, so basically, it was over Christmas break, and I was just like sitting there, like you know, with nothing better to do than just read comics and graphic novel trades sure. and stuff. But I, I bring that up because, like, by this time last year, I think we both had read like a ton, and I've only read. I'm looking at my Goodreads list. I've only read like ten books this year so far and um so i I think i'm just kind of deliberately just going a little slowly through the year some of these books we've talked about already you know like or or or, or for episodes of um uh uh, required reading you're you're Um, struggling with the title of our show how offensive (laughs) i've been i've reread a few batman trades venom uh, I re- I read I'd never read Venom actually, um, and I, I read that recently, which I really enjoyed. Um, I have posted a couple of reviews uh, to the required reading website of a couple of books, um, Super Women, which you had loaned me, and When I Was a Loser, True Stories of True Ah, jeez, When I Was a Loser, True Stories of Barely Surviving High School by John McNally, which is an essay collection, which is really fun to read. So, but the stuff that I haven't talked about, I've got three books. A fourth that I've started, but I'll bring up next time I'm on the show, so that because I'll be done by it. Um, one of them is this coffee table book that I had. I had been my wife and I had gone to a bed and breakfast for um, our anniversary, and it was in the room. 
And so I just kind of started flipping through it. And I was, you know, when we were just kind of killing time at one point. And um, it was called The Day in the Life of America. And it's uh, and it was this coffee table book that Kodak, along with a couple other companies who sponsored, put together where they got like all these really noted photographers throughout the country. And they had them take pictures all on this one day in 1986. And I think it was like um, May 1st or something like that. And it was like in the spring of 1986, and they basically put the photographs chronologically throughout the day, and um, they happen to have it at the public library. So it's not much of a read as it is a just a gorgeous photography book of this slice of life for capturing like mid-80s America. So the nostalgia in me – the nostalgia nerd in me was like really – satisfied with that. I was like, this is really fascinating. So if you find that book at your library, because it's probably on eBay and you probably end up paying a few bucks for it, but if you find it at your local library, I would uh, check it out and, and flip through it because it's just one of those really cool, like it's almost like looking through old Life magazines or Nat Geo or like any magazine where like they serve as time capsules for a past time or part of our nation's history that doesn't always get, um, you know, covered in like history books and stuff. So two others. One, is a very serious literary read. The other one is a is is pop culture related. The very serious literary read, which I just finished teaching to my AP class, was Toni Morrison's Beloved. Uh, this is a novel about uh, that takes place in uh, the eighteen hundreds in Ohio, and it is a pre and post slavery narrative of um, a woman named Setha, who was a escape and then freed slave um, during the era and. She is living in a house um, in, in in the outskirts of Cincinnati that is haunted. And uh, when an old friend of hers from the plantation where she used to work, uh, Paul D, shows up, um, he begins a relationship with her. And he essentially chases the ghost out of the house. And then all of a sudden this um, – after one day, uh, her, uh, Paul D, and her, her daughter, Denver, are returning from a essentially a fair in town. Um, this girl – is at the house and her name is beloved and without giving too much away, you begin to realize that it's very possible that she is the ghost that had been haunting. And it is the ghost of one of her other children who had died. And the book is told in a very nonlinear fashion where Morrison jumps around to, show like really viscerally show the cruelty of slavery um, in the past lives of Paul D and, and Setha and, and the other people who were around them, but also shows this um, emptiness that, and that Setha is feeling because of, you know, things she had done in her past and how people who've experienced trauma like this have buried their grief and buried their trauma so much that when it comes to the surface again, there are rare consequences. And it won the Nobel uh, or Morrison won the Nobel prize in literature. And it was a, it's one of those essential, you know, one of those essential American novels to read. And it really does shed light on a, on a very, very dark part of our, our country's history, our, our society's history. And it, but it is also like the character wise and, 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 and writing wise, it's like, it's phenomenally good. And it's the second time I'd read it and I hadn't read it in like 20 years. I read it in college and 
I think I could read it a third time and get more out of it. It is very, very layered. Um, so I, I would highly recommend it. Do you have anything on that before I go on to the other one that's more comics related? Oh my gosh. That, that's a heavy book. And, uh, oh, it's a very, very heavy book. I feel the weight of mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I don't – it was hard for me to get through if only because of the stuff that actually happens in it. Yeah. But I do recognize it's – I think beauty in the language and, and how Morrison is able to tell that story. and uh, But it's very shocking. And also, yeah, yeah. Th- these weren't freshmen, were they? That you No, these are seniors. Okay. These are my AP seniors. Because yeah. I thought to myself, man, that's no, hard to no, handle I'm, for you. Okay. No, we're, we're, we're reading Homer in my freshman Oh, year. yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, we we in fact we just finished um we just finished the Odyssey, so I got to read the bloodbath that oh, is the boy. end of the Odyssey. Yep. <laughs> With all the metaphors to like eating and food and such. Yeah, I, I love the Odyssey. Yeah. So, you know, if if there's a if if out of the three great classic epic poems, the Odyssey, the Aeneid and uh Iliad, mm-hmm. um that's my order in terms oh, of preference. Okay. I put the Odyssey is my favorite, the Aeneid is um is second now. I, I haven't read the Aeneid in a very long time, but but I do remember really enjoying it. And then the um, the Iliad is <laughs> distant third. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, and uh, Beowulf is not an ancient mm. epic, but Beowulf is another epic that I absolutely love. So because how could you not? Mm-hmm. It's Vikings. There you go. My other speaking of fights. Um, <laughs> Like that segue. My other book that I just finished, um, and I don't want to reveal too much of what I thought about it because I'm about to loan it to you. Yes, and I, I want you to go in blind. Yeah, well, you know, just I don't want you to think like, you know, Tom thought this was good or bad. Uh, it's Slugfest. Yeah. It's uh, Slugfest inside the epic 50 year battle between Marvel and DC. And it. Um, it is essentially a, a history of the rivalry between DC and Marvel from the 60s. Or really up to about the present day, it goes. I don't. It was published last year. Um, there are references to Batman vs Superman, so it's within. Okay. Yeah, so it's it's very very recent. Mm-hmm. I don't think they. I, I want to say he might have mentioned the Wonder Woman movie, but at the time he had probably finished the book and it was about to come out. It was probably not out yet, so I can't remember if that really if the Wonder Woman movie got a lot of play. Mm-hmm. So I want to say that. Um, it was like probably um, recent as of like 2015, 2016. Um, when did Batman v Superman come out? 2016? Yeah, maybe. Okay, so probably 2016 was probably about recent up to there to the end of 2016. So, you know, um, and there are chapters on um, the corporatization of comics, mm-hmm. like, you know, the Marvel being bought by Disney sure. and, and such. There's, um, there is a look at, you know, how – the rise of Marvel in the '60s versus the sort of stodgy old company of DC by that point, which was really running a sort of, you know, if, if the guys from Mad Men did comic books type of way, you know, if these old white, crusty white people. It, it's like I enjoyed it. When you and I, when you're done with it, I'd like to sit down with you either over um, coffee or or whatever, and uh, and really kind of. Talk it, talk it out because I think we both have a lot to say about mm-hmm. it. So, it's an enjoyable read. Um, one thing I can say that won't spoil too much about it is that it acts as a good companion to the uh, Marvel: The Untold Story. Okay. 
because you get a lot of DC history in that regard that you I really haven't in like one place. Like I've read articles and stuff in here and there and, and heard stories about like, you know, how things went down at DC at this point or another. But hey, you've read Marvel the Untold Story, I'm I assuming, actually right? haven't. Oh, it's that's a really good book too. And it's this sort of insiders look at Marvel and it 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 doesn't pull its punches mm-hmm. and um we get a little bit of that for DC, okay. which is something I really wish we we had gotten because Sometimes I like hearing the kind of ins and outs of how the sausage is made, as they say, and and um, kind of like um, one of my favorite books in that regard is the book um, Live from New York, which was Tom Shales's oral history of Saturday Night oh, Live. Okay. And there's another one called I Want My MTV, which is about the first like decade. It's from the founding of MTV up until like the rise of the real world. And I highly recommend that one. Like these are these are interviews with different people and stuff like that. So um, Slugfest is told not in an oral history way. It's just told in a straightforward, you know, um, nonfiction narrative way. Uh, but it's 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 worth the read. And I'm going to hold any deep review I have on it until you've read it. Okay, I heard about it from my mom because she listens to NPR, and uh, she sent me something about it, and then I remember sending it to you, and normally I send you something and you've already heard about it, so I was pleasantly surprised that you uh, had not heard about it, and I remember you yeah. put it on your wish list, so I feel Got like Christmas, I... Actually, six Christmas de- gift. Yeah, see, six degrees, I helped get you that gift, um, all with the evil intention of one day borrowing it, so it's all coming uh-huh. to Well, Tom was sick because what happened was, a sick human being, I mean, he was going to lend me Echo. I didn't ask for it. He just said, I think you'd like this. And I did actually really like Rachel Rising by Terry Moore, so I think he thought it. So I was expecting Echo when I met him. I I think it was before Christmas. I come to find Thomas in Panera Bread, and he's got this black bag (laughs) full of six books. The Waiting Place, which I've already talked about, I think. Maybe I didn't recommend that yet. No, I don't think you, I don't think you talked about that yet. We have Echo. You talked about the Star Wars books. Yes. Uh, Echo, yeah, the Aftermath trilogy, and then Bloodline. And I thought to myself, when am I going to read all these? I finally read them all. So uh, I did talk about the first two Aftermaths, and I said I was going to wait to do the third because I was still in the process. So I'll talk about that now, and then Bloodline, and then something else that I read. And then uh, I'm currently reading Leia, Princess of Alderaan, which I'll talk about next time. But then I think I'm going to be on a break from Star Wars unless someone really thinks there's something I need to read. So Aftermath Empire. Empire and Star Wars by Chuck Wendig. Final showdown between the New Republic and the Empire draws near. All eyes turn to a once isolated planet, Jakku. (gasps) The Battle of Endor shattered the Empire, scattering its remaining forces across the galaxy. But the months following the Rebellion's victory have not been easy. The fledgling New Republic has suffered a devastating attack from the Imperial Remnant, forcing the new democracy to escalate its hunt for the hidden enemy. For her role in the deadly ambush, Grad Admiral Ray Sloan is the most wanted Imperial criminal, and one-time rebel pilot Nora Wexley, back in service at Leah's urgent request, is leading the hunt. But more than just loyal to the, new, to the New Republic drives Nora forward. Her husband was turned into a murderous pawn in Sloan's assassination plot, and now she wants vengeance as much as justice. It wasn't really Sloan's idea, so I do disagree with that on the Amazon.com thing. Sloan, too, <laughs> is on a furious quest, pursuing the treacherous Gallius Rex. Yeah, it was his 
idea, to the Baron Plant Jakku. As a true mastermind behind the Empire's devastating attack, Rax has led the Empire to its defining moment. The cunning strategist has gathered the powerful remnants of the Empire's war machine, preparing to execute the late Emperor Palpatine's final plan. As the Imperial fleet orbits Jakku, an armada of Republic fighters closes in to finish what began at Endor. Nora and her crew soar into the heart of an apocalyptic clash that will leave land and sky alike scorched, and the future of the galaxy will finally be decided. I really liked this trilogy. Some people, as I said in the last one, were poo-pooing it and saying it wasn't as worth it, but I very much enjoyed it. And it's also good. Now you understand why, when we first see Rey in a, uh, a Star Destroyer, where that Star Destroyer came from. Because it came from this yeah. battle, which was nice. And again, I like the characters. I think Ray Sloan was awesome. I liked Nora. Mr. Bones, unfortunately, was utterly destroyed at the end of this. But <laughs> I just like the ragtag crew. I think it's cool focusing on, on different people, and I got to care about them throughout the trilogy. I think Ray Sloan was one of my favorite characters out of that whole trilogy. Yeah. I really liked that character. Yeah. And it, it's fun to like have the connections because the first book that got me into this mess was A New Dawn because guys, I wanted to read something about the Rebels, and there she was, and then she popped up on Star Wars Rebels, and mm. then here she is. So I like the connection there. And, of course, she has a higher ranking in this. And then the final one that Tom lent me was Bloodline by Claudia Gray, and it says, Witness the birth of the Resistance. When the Rebellion defeated the Empire in the skies above Endor, Leia Organa believed it was the beginning to a lasting peace, but after decades of vicious infighting and partisan gridlock in the New Republic Senate, that hope seems like a distant memory. Now a respected senator, Leia must grapple with the dangers that threatened to cripple the fledgling democracy. Always using this fledgling word. From both Mm -hmm. within and without. Underworld kingpins, treacherous politicians, and imperial loyalists are sowing chaos in the galaxy. Desperate to take action, senators are calling for the election of a first senator. Ugh. Always repeating history, aren't we? It is their hope yeah. that this influential post will bring strong leadership to a divided galaxy. As the daughter of Darth Vader, Leia faces with distrust the prospect of any one person holding such a powerful position, even when supporters suggest Leia herself for the job. But a new enemy may make this path Leia's only option, for at the edges of the galaxy, a mysterious threat is growing. That threat being, of course, the, um, the First Order. And the big thing mm-hmm. I was trying to—I always f- try to figure out about the um, the titles and how they come into play. And so at first I thought the bloodline was in relation to her being governor of that planet Biren, but she's turning down that because I guess she's like the next in line. They they just lost a governor over there, and she says she doesn't want to be that. And then that um, her political enemy sort of goes over there and takes that, and that's. Yeah. But then you actually realize it's because of the Darth Vader bloodline because that is revealed in here and that so that's like the biggest thing and there's very much a transition from Leia being this well-beloved and remembered war hero to shunned from politics and everyone looking at her with a side eye and wondering what her true motives were behind everything I didn't like this one as much as the aftermath trilogy yeah and not that I don't think Star Wars should have policies. I think part of it is part of it is the fact that they're talking about like you know uh, the, the revelation that she was Vader's daughter. I guess it works for the intrigue. She didn't find out she was Vader's daughter till like two thirds of the way through Return of the Jedi, and so that should not be her motivation for being worried about a first senator election because her motivation should be the fact that she served in the Imperial Senate under Palpatine. Like she was part of the rebellion. She was raised in the rebellion. Mm -hmm. If she had never been Darth Vader's daughter, 
she still would have been hesitant to have somebody elect a first senator. Sure. I don't know if she would have joined Brutus and Cassius, <laughs> but you know, I sure. mean, that's what it is, yeah. right? It's very, very Caesar. It's very Julius Caesar. But, but you know, so that that always kind of bugs me. Is like you know, her story was never in the context of Vader until the very, very end of it. So don't kind of try to retcon that. That was always there like that and um or or trying to pin that on her. I mean if she's if she's trying to reconcile that I see, but it wasn't terrible. The other thing was too, and I am one of those people who actually really enjoyed The Force Awakens. I do um, too. I know that I know that there was like this backlash <sighs> of it and people like, you know, it's just like I I'm so tired of the internet. The one really huge quib- beef I have with The Force Awakens is the Star Killer base. Mm. And the scene where they destroy the New Republic Senate system or whatever, it's like, I don't know. I'm like, you really could have done something with the with the political sure. aspects of why the resistance was there and why the New Republic wasn't – it wasn't their fleet or their army. Why was the New Republic so pacifist? I mean, there was a lot that you could have done and you just kind of left it on the table by basically wiping it out so that you could have your like – your Death Star, mm-hmm. and uh, that's the one thing in the movie that I think didn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, keep Star Killer base, don't destroy the Hosnian system, and and see what we can do. And but th- that's a whole other conversation. So, <laughs> d- but yeah, I think you like this. I yeah. think that you like this more than me, I right? did. I did like it. Yeah, I I would almost disagree with you slightly with the. Um, I don't know. I think Leia is always afraid that the secret is going to get out. But I think she does recognize that the first senator is a dangerous path towards what they had. It's just everyone else is putting on her the fact that she's now Darth Vader's daughter. So if she were first Mm -hmm. senator, then she would, of course, follow in her footsteps, uh, in the footsteps of her father. But, yeah, I don't know. I didn't like the fact that they're very much putting on us – like Han being restless and a wanderer, and I'm thinking to myself, did he really never, I mean, maybe he's not the settling down type, but it's not like he was always away from her. And I wondered if they were doing that to, for it to make sense of why they were so separated when we saw them in The Force Awakens. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But apparently I asked somebody yeah. about it, and she said that they did that in the, um, whatever it's called now, the Legends thing, where he's always, they're doing different things all the time, but... I guess in the Thrawn trilogy I read, it seemed like they were more together, but oh well. Yeah. Okay, final thing. Disobedience by Naomi Alderman for Ronit Krushka, 32 and single, who lives on Manhattan's Upper West Side. Orthodox Judaism is a suffocating culture she fled long ago. When she learns that her estranged father, the preeminent rabbi of the London Orthodox Jewish community in which she was raised, has died, she must return home for the first time in years. There, amid the traditional ebb and flow of the community, Ronit reminds herself of her dual mission, to mourn and to collect a single heirloom, her mother's Shabbat candlesticks. But when Ronit connects with her complex and beloved cousin Dovid, as well as with a forbidden childhood sweetheart who's a girl, she becomes more than just a stranger in her old home. She becomes a threat. Set at the crossroads of tradition and modernity of personal desires and the demands of God, disobedience is about the importance of moving on and what we lose when we do. And it is about the tendency towards disobedience that we all possess. Uh, I picked this up not randomly, but because I saw a trailer, because it's going to be a movie with um, mm-hmm. Rachel Weiss and Rachel McAdams. And so it seems yes. 
pretty interesting. So uh, I read it. I enjoyed it. I think what I saw in the trailer, I think it's going to be different than what I read. But uh, it was very interesting. And a lot of, I mean, Naomi Alderman is like, was raised in a community like this. So all of the Jewish uh, culture and religious, what's that word? Liturgy uh, is very much, I think, factual and everything. So it's very interesting. Also, there were sort of two, there was a, it was very weird, actually, a third-person limited narrator, and then the typeface would change, and it was closer to a first-person, but it was still third-person, mm. which is, it was very interesting. So if it was run it, it'd be like third-person still, but it was very close to first So it was interesting. But uh, yeah, I recommend that. <gasps> well, we're at the end here, and so, of course, it's the time for you, Tom, to tell people <laughs> where they can find you. Uh, well, first of all, you can find us at Required Reading with Tom and Stella, yes. which is our monthly podcast where we take a look at a work of literature mm-hmm. and give it a good review. Hopefully. Um, that comes out, a good review. Yeah, yeah. Or, or good as in thorough oh, okay. um, review. That comes out once a month and usually around the second um, episode. If this is coming out in March, then uh, – the latest episode will be March 15th, uh, so it usually comes around around then. Um, we also have a website for that, which is requiredreadingwithtomandstella.com, where um, we post show notes for the episode and try to consistently post reviews of things we read if we remember to do that. I've been bad about that. <laughs> yes, I've been not so great about it either. Um, then my solo stuff, you have uh, – I have two – I have two shows which are over at the Two True Freaks Network and um, along with Required Reading. And uh, one of them is In Country. I'm taking an issue-by-issue look at the Marvel Comics series The Nom. And uh, as of this recording, I'm up to about issue 70 of that series. And You're getting close to the end. I am. I'm getting close. There's 84 issues. I've got about 20 episodes left of the show. It's going to be an 100-episode show, and I'm in about episode 80, I believe, just Mm -hmm. came out. And my other show is Pop Culture Affidavit, which is everything random in the world of popular culture. There's comics, books, movies, television shows, music, all sorts of stuff. And it's a random topic every episode, which is just about every month. And you can find that at popcultureaffidavit.com, where I also post uh, blog posts a little more consistently than the other site. And you can follow me on Twitter at popaff, P-O-P-A-F-F. Lovely. If people wanted to email you in regards to anything that popped up here, where would that be a good um, place to? Popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Lovely. Okay. Well, if you want, you can also send any questions or comments to me at BeckerLaOracle at gmail.com. No questions, no debatable questions now, but what Tom and I really want to know is uh, who is the beloved of Zinda or what does that reference mean? And if you if you know, please let us know because Tom's going to be on the next episode in next month so we can both talk about that and smack our heads like, of course, that makes so much <laughs> sense. Uh, remember, you can also find the show on Google Play and Stitcher if you don't like iTunes. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at Backroll to Oracle. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook. Facebook and Twitter as well. And of course, support, support our show and TBU by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to my high comics for sponsoring Backroll Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And until next time, would you like to say it? Fly on, Babylon. <laughs> That's God. not how it goes. Fly on, Babs lovers. Woo.